Exit for Podcast Mutants, Magic, and Marvels is brought to you by the Cage Club Network. So for all things media, check out cageclub.me. That's cageclub.me. And for all things X's for Podcast, check out X's for Podcast on Twitter and YouTube. Hey everybody, I'm Nico, and you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at NicoAction. That's N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N. And I'm TK. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at XNateXGrayX. And we're here to renew our vows, I guess, which I need to be honest, I don't think I get the title of what we're here to talk about at all. I don't think I get it. I mean, like, I know what a vow renewal is. I've watched Modern Family. Thank you. But, like, I don't think I know what renewing your vow... Anyway, we're here to talk about it you know we're gonna start with the secret wars volume which i affectionately call volume number zero since they're so insistent on the four volumes of the regular series issues one through 23 burn stopping at 23 burn burn oh my god the bleeding Ugh, something about it so we're gonna take a look at the five volumes and 28 issues of renew your vows probably get through zero one and two and then that'll leave a beautiful balance of three four with a little bit of spider verse to talk about but all right teak renew your so first off i do just want to say i don't love the title but i do see that there's no quippier word or like phrase or reference that would indicate to you we are putting spider spider-man and mary jane back together despite the one more day erasure annulment of their marriage so you know mark like quick pitch I do appreciate it. It just, uh, it seems a little silly of a name. And also, like, if you're going to call it that for this many volumes, like, just have them do it at one point at least. It feels a little bit of a challenge to really interpolate what we're here to talk about. To, I guess, in some hateful way, remind everybody one more time what we're here to talk about, like, in the big picture. We started with, like, 225 issues of MC2. Then we spent, like, five... and. was 15 episodes and then we spent five episodes sort of like dicking around the marvel universe taking a look at threads of things that connect to things like the thunderstrike mini and captain america core which gave us kiyoshi morales and a whole lot of not much else and so then we took a look at spider-verse and we we dug it and then i made us take a look at like a what the and i And then I made us read 300 pages of one issue of Slingers. <laughs> and then, uh, <laughs> and then you know, we found ourselves in Spider-Geddon. And after we Spider got past that, we said, all right, we got some other stuff. Uh, Deadpool Samurai. Now we got, you know, Renew Your Vows. Then we got some more stuff. But Renew Your Vows. This is about Spider-Man and Mary Jane and the daughter they never had, which was like the fucking thesis of this show when it began at you know i think i began spilling this episode like three hours ago so i came and imagine <laughs> when this fucking show started but i'm pretty sure it was about like mr and mrs parker and their daughter but her name was mayday and um this is not mayday parker no it is not and that's a blessing and a curse 
it does really feel like somebody out there said, I love what Tom DeFalco did when he made the daughter a spider girl. I want to make my own. And I like what it chooses to tell, right? Now, not to get too far into it, but this seeks to explore the ideas of what about a spider girl, but actually getting some girl time in there. I'm not trying to over identify a teenager as an adult, but spider girl is certainly a girl and I'm not here to argue that, but she's also a woman and to keep her a girl forever was really diminutive. She had saved the world a couple dozen times. You know what I mean? And it really felt like calling this young woman spider, but I mean, you can't call her spider young woman. You know what I mean? Like, right. You kind of can't have like a young mademoiselle spider. Like, okay. First of all, I desperately need 17 magazine spider. Like (laughs) she's my hero. First of all, it's Elaine Welteroth and she's literally here to save all of us. Uh, It would be a teen Vogue spider, but I do love where your head is at. Thank you. Thank you. So the key elements of what Renew Your Vows initially seeks to do is kind of give us the magic of a Frank Miller, the man without fear treatment. Now, not that everything comes back to Daredevil, but it does. And at one point, you know, I'm not saying that Matt is exactly like the age Milton Berle was doing his final rounds when he got blinded, but he's definitely shaving at some time you know like it's he's old fuckers like an old man aarp it's fucking crazy not really but like they keep de-aging him for the blinding and part of that is because you know the lore goes further back and there is some really incredible mythos that's created by de-aging him for the incident and that leaves a world to explore that mostly stayed unexplored we see it a little bit here and there most notably in the man without fear there's of course the black costume daredevil uh, not quite daredevil look that is hugely inspirational for the tv show and within the context of that we got some cool younger matt as daredevil before he was really a lawyer kind of adventures and that really just is like a time-honored tradition at marvel you just sort of go back and you say shucks wouldn't it be cute if and you just kind of make him you know kid daredevil and it's a little bit more of a boxing costume with a hoodie you know what i mean like you you do something to it this is like one of the only examples that i can think of where they weren't even like do it again but different they're just like do it again yeah you have highlighted the way they expand the parameters so it is not the exact same thing and i think that's a smart choice and i do enjoy a lot of it but this is a titus i want to be a baby i want to start over moment and i man guys it's tough you know how much we love mayday i mean we're melting down we're getting into like countdown clock time for when we are going to read our Mayday Infinity comic. But I really think some great choices were made in telling the story of Annie, in writing the story of Annie. I think, uh, Nico, to your point about the fact that she is, uh, Mayday is Spider Girl, but, you know, she's a little bit older at her start. And so, you know, there's a little bit of Spider Woman in there 
there and she makes a lot of adult decisions she's also written by a much more adult person that really had such little connection to the youth of today and comics just kind of felt differently back then about how you connect to the youth of today we part of this kind of do-over that we get is that between writing and editorial and things like social media we have a better understanding of how to as people that are full-on adults and probably at least 10 if not more years away from our teen experience to still kind of honor and point to that experience and i think these are the things that really elevate and give some grace to this series that really is just essentially like spider girl but what if we just did it again but there's things that are so much better about this in a way that is deeply unfair yeah like and i never mean to be perhaps judgmental of the inadequacies of an era but the world wasn't ready to support certain things like my incredible husband and i were talking about some dates and the single for where have all the cowboys gone by paula cole was released the same day as the single for meredith brooks's bitch that's insane that's like an unbelievable confluence and they both followed alanis morissette's you ought to know which entitled women to be angry in a way that was usually kept for courtney love and her toxic dripping face hole and i think that we sometimes lose sight of the fact that until spider girl the longest running female titles at marvel were things like spider woman and dazzler these weren't women who had titles that really commanded respect i mean even early ms marvel struggled to last longer than 23 issues ms marvel's first series that would go on to hit 50 issues was 2006's series primarily written by brian reed so when we're talking about women at marvel we're talking about a deeply underserved community to this day who spider girl was really not i mean how did they fucking think when they couldn't keep a woman in print i'm willing to bet that spider girl was the only female solo title at marvel almost the entire time it was coming out with the exception of a other spider person i'll allow for the maddie franklin spider girl or the Aranya spider titles to come out at the same time but i would imagine with exceptions like that maybe a storm miniseries here and there how did they think that this character that represented this minority in comics would be able to carry a spider banner you know it's the fucking weirdest thing because as we're going through as i'm going through my notes and i'm writing things down i'm like ooh, interesting decision Ooh, i can't believe they'd kill this person off panel well you know it's not like an au is gonna last 200 ish holy shit i can't believe i said that again <laughs> i can't believe that i just keep going to mc2 isn't possible <laughs> when i just spent a year studying it like yeah. it's some sort of artifact like you and i are those people in that tom defal issue of Amazing Spider-Man and we're dusting off the web shooters and we're like, oh look, it's a sacred artifact of the spider people. Like, I don't I don't, I don't know. I don't know. I'm sassy about this book. I get where you're coming from. I think there is, for us in particular, a lot to be sassy about because, yeah, I mean, I think despite the fact that the book does continue, you know, more of it, more issues get published, Spider-Girl is so often not 
successful at the things we want for it and it is never able to break out of its track it just doesn't get despite getting a lot of issues it doesn't get a lot of opportunities and it sort of feels like renew your vows and annie you know don't get a ton of opportunities but they get more and they get better ones and they get the ones that i feel like maybe could have made mayday less of like a a uh remember when type of character so what exactly is a renew your vows in case you're still not quite sure well a renew your vows is kind of a remember when moment all right so let's go back in time to a thing we haven't done yet that we're gonna do but that's already happened before anything we've done except for the things that we did that we did after the things that we did in the first place right so after jms left spider-man his run was concluded with an issue where spider-man's marriage was bargained away to the devil in exchange for Aunt May's life and from there we got a bold new era of Spider-Man written by the Spidey Brain Trust. Now the Spidey Brain Trust behind Brand New Day which followed One More Day which was about a spider guy who had been locked in prison for stealing a loaf of bread and his sister died of the consumption or whatever and then her daughter gets married and all I know is I know most of Master of the House but like Les Mis was never my show I guess and I, I do the 24601 note if I'm drunk so like anyway um, so brand new day Spidey Brain Trust and it's Dan Slott, Zeb Wells Bob Gale who most people probably don't really know Bob Gale for comics but Bob Gale is the guy who did one of the early and like still credited to the final project and is very involved Back to the Future drafts and is very associated with the franchise and he wrote wrote what is unfortunately maybe considered one of the least popular volumes of Daredevil. He wrote a six-issue miniseries that breaks up the early Bendis years, separating the Ben Uric arc from the proper beginning of Bendis's underboss material with the revelation about identity. And then Mark Guggenheim round out the brain trust. So we had Dan Slott, Mark Guggenheim, Zeb Wells, and Bob Gale. And I keep going to say Gail Harold, and I know that's not right. <laughs> so, But now I really want Gail Harold starring as Jean Valjean. John, the spider person. So uh, anyway, it left a really weird, the bread left a really weird taste in a lot of people's mouths. And there were a lot of weird attempts to kind of reconnect to that pre-weirdness moment, specifically because JMS, you know, J. Michael Straczynski famously refused to finish his final issue. It was finished by Joe Quesada, who would be the one to return to the pages of pre-divorcey, well, I guess not divorce but like hell divorce like you know it's you know, hell annulment let's be clear yeah like burn annulment with Paulo Rivera on omit one moment in time and now we have renew your vows which I remember as like a reader in secret wars thinking I'm not sure what's happening is this putting them back together in secret wars just to like break them back up and I thought like you know what what if amazing spider-man follows like the clear actual this never changed now narrative like what if spider-man as the everyman of the marvel universe remembers everything and i didn't pick it up i really had no relationship with it you know all these years later to come to find ultimately renew your vows 
as like a 28 issue series is kind of like a gem result of Secret Wars. It's not Emma Frost in a sea of Adrians or anything, but it's like, you know, a Christian in a sea of Cordelia's and I'll take it. Yeah. And I'll take it is a, a big part of the sentiment that you get here. Absolutely not perfect. It's always going to be difficult to hinge anything on the erasure of Peter's marriage. That is one of those moments, those dividing lines in comic fandom and editorial and creative. Some people really like it. Some people really hate it. Some people really think, you know, from a keeping the character viable standpoint, it's absolutely what had to happen. Others disagree. It's one of those. It's like the decimation or so many things that big events that come up in comics, decisions that get made that are polarizing and I think really can color each fan's relationship to Marvel as a whole, to the individual character. That was a big one for me in terms of just turning me off of Spider-Man. And I did not pick this up at the time because I felt relatively confident that this would not lead to a return of that relationship when the universe reset after Secret Wars. And I didn't like playing around with it when I did not feel like erasing that marriage was the right choice. I wasn't super interested at the time. I think I would remain uninterested, except for it's about a lot more than just, you know, dipping a toe in the water of reversing the erasure of Peter and MJ's marriage. It really is somebody else taking a crack at the superpower daughter of Spider-Man and in doing so also giving us Spider Family, which is unique and special. And I would take these 28 issues over pretty much any Fantastic Four story. So, you know, I love to see a superpowered family. And that's the key phrase there. This is about a superpowered family. Spider Girl was so focused on very of the time tropey things that we started to see shows shake off years later. But because one of the things that we always felt was that Spider Girl was trying to ape popular culture of its era, it had a lot of like Giles is the librarian and Oz is the quiet one. So that anytime either one of them did something that wasn't quiet, which for Oz was speak every episode, he literally has like a poignant, oh wow, Oz is deep moment every episode after a while. So then he's not the quiet one. And you're banking on our pre-established notion of who this character is. Giles is the fascinating dark-sided character with a rocker past and uh, incredible like sexual daddy vibe yet is still capable of being very serious because like he's he's not like you know Matt LeBlanc where no matter what you say you're just thinking no I just want to see you naked but like he's also still like a very he had a very different kind of sexiness for a 90s guy you know what I mean he also you know you have to respect Giles so much because he was so incredibly sexy but that was off limits for the kids never joked about right and that's I think what I'm trying to get yeah Yeah. yes thank you and that's something that Peter Parker has to have at this point in his life he needs to have that 
that like dad vibe, even when he's not being a dad. And so I just, you know, Giles was sort of like a, a quick reach for it. I know there's probably much better examples, but in the world of Spider-Girl, Peter could never break out of having formally been Spider-Man. He was formally Spider-Man at the beginning of the run, so he was formally Spider-Man forever. MJ was the mom. So when we'd really get into a point where, and not that anybody ever doesn't need their parents, not to say that for a moment, but Mayday had reached a point where she was no longer really searching for her mother's regular support in that regard, so they gave her another child. And like, they had people eternally in these modes, because that's kind of like the thing of writing. You can either have a gimmick that you solve on the first day and then just have to keep resolving till people get over it, which is a procedural, or you can have a gimmick that slowly evolves and pays off over time. And Spider-Girl chose to be a procedural that focused on its fantasy elements. And I think instead, what we're seeing here from Renew Your Vows, by allowing it to be a family piece, sort of like Spiderling Saga, if you will, right? <laughs> I think we're seeing it from the other side. We're seeing it from the, oh, but what if it could evolve the gimmick over time in such a way that it pays off? Yep. I think that's a really accurate portrayal of what we have going on here. So what we have going on here is, in fact, 28 issues of Spider-Man Renew Your Vows spread across a five-issue Secret Wars miniseries. Now, if you're looking for more information about Secret Wars, please do check out our AU episode on Secret Wars, where we talk about Spider Island and Spider-Verse and whatever other spider things they threw our way that we could get our hands on from Secret Wars. Here we're talking about Renew Your Vows, which was released from June to September of 2015. We're also going to be taking a look at the complete run of Renew Your Vows, the 23-issue series, which began in November of 2016 and concluded September of 2018. Now, the creative teams here are really incredible names, like top-tier talent, whether every issue was a hit or not, every one of these names is like a motherfucker. And that's so fucking cool to get to talk about. So many incredibly talented people. Now, you know, unsurprisingly, Dan Slott was the mastermind behind the Amazing Spider-Man issues during Secret Wars. Renew Your Vows 1 through 5 were written by Dan Slott with pencils by Adam Kubert, inks by John Dell, Andrew Hennessy, Mark Morales, and Scott Hanna, colors by Justin Posner, and letters by Joe Caramagna. Then we get a little bit choppier when we get into the series proper. So, okay, Jerry Conway is responsible for writing issues one through nine in some part. He scripted and plotted one through seven, but he was only part of the plotting process for eight and nine, trading it off to his former storytelling partner, Ryan Stegman, from the title. There's also a backup story by Anthony Holden and one by Kate Leth in the first issue. Now, from there, issues eight through 12 see writing in sometimes just script or sometimes script and plot by Ryan Stegman, who finishes out the book's initial year. In that time, we see pencils from Ryan Stegman, Nathan Stockton, and Juan Frigeri, as well as two issues closing out that era on the title by Brian Level. From there, we have inks by Ryan Stegman, Anthony Holden, Marguerite Savage, and the remaining pencilers did all of their own inks on this title, a trend that has become more prevalent as we've moved closer to the present. The colorists include Sonia Obach again, Anthony Holden and Marguerite Savage, and Jesus Halbertov. The letters include Joe Carmagna, this fucking Anthony Holden guy. Good 
Good for him doing his own letters. Get all those points on the dollar, motherfucker. I love it for you, dude. And Clayton Cowles. From there, we move into the final, like, year of the title, which sees a complete changeover of creative team. And it's a bummer because I genuinely think Jody Hauser did an amazing job. And I only think that the book didn't really know what it needed to be at the time. And that certainly is as much editorial, uh, changing market base, uh, you know, needing to plan these things out well in advance, you know, editorial needing to respond to all of those things, the creative teams changing over and over, no single person's fault that this was not a great era for the title in terms of critical or commercial reception. But issues 13 through 23 are by Jody Hauser. Pencils and inks are by the same people for all of these issues. 13 through 15 are Nick Roche. 16 through 18 are Nathan Stockman, while 19 through 23 are Scott Koblish. Colors all the way through the Hauser era are by Ruth Redman, as well as letters by Joe Caramagna. Okay, so now you know where I'm going. Always. Let's do some numbers. Let's hear it. Amazing Spider-Man Renew Your Vows is officially the third highest selling book we will have ever discussed on this show, with issue number one selling 203,000 fucking copies. Making it the 67th best selling comic from 2010 to 2020 and truly an unbelievable a a nearly Star Wars number one ZN number of variant covers. What do you even say to that? What do you even say to 200 and like what do you even say? Like I really my favorite thing is you know I have never once asked you to tell me a number before we record because I really do just want to have the reactions and process live every time Um, but that is in every single way insane to me. Now I am going to say outside of She-Hulk this is the best Dan Slot work I've ever read. I really I'm going to just say it up front I give the miniseries like a solid A. Really. I think it's charming. I think it has everything I'm looking for from a miniseries. I thought it was epic. I thought it was clever. I loved every shock. I loved every twist. I'm here for this fucking miniseries. I couldn't agree more. Uh, Yeah any problems I have with it are related to the grander context. Exactly. Yes. Exactly. That is important but at a certain point you do evaluate the work as it is it really is fantastic and you can see a passion and love for Peter for MJ for Peter and MJ you know it's not surprising that there is love for this character of Annie but that's there too I really had a question and I want to go look into it in the future but this is um, noticeably the only title that I can think of that creates a a, a world um, for Secret Wars and then that world go continues after Secret Wars ends. There were a lot of one-off worlds and there were a lot of worlds that had been created prior to Secret Wars that became part of Battle World. I'm sure there's another couple, but um, there were very few that were original for Secret Wars that continued after and I thought that was pretty neat. I agree. I can only think of ones that fit your parameters. That's a terrific catch. I love that perspective and I think it supports the number. Now, the remaining issues vary about 10,000 copies. There's, a, there's of course, the precipitous drop. It's gigantic, right? But makes sense. It's a number ones game. You know what I mean? There is even a precipitous drop between Secret Wars 1 and 2, which we previously discussed. Now, issue 1 sold 203,000. Issue 2 is not the second best-selling issue, but issue 2 sold 
just under 94,000 cops. That's still insane. That's still unbelievably high. Yeah. The next month, August, saw two issues ship. Issue three sold 90,000. Issue four sold 83.5. I think it's double ship fatigue, mm-hmm. personally. And I know that Amazing Spider-Man relaunched right in this area. I think there was just some book fatigue, you sure. know? Because issue five rebounds to just under 95,000 copies. I think people probably were also pretty curious about where this is going. I agree. I imagine part of that drop-off from one to two, I mean, as you mentioned, there's always a drop-off, but I think people really wanted to check out number one and get an idea of what this was. Like, is there any hope that, exactly as I said, that we could end Secret Wars putting these two back together? And I think it was probably pretty clear as soon as you read that first one that no. So on top of any other drop-off, you've got just, you know, definitely people in the mix who saw that this was not going to be the world that continued for Peter Parker. Well, people pretty tightly held in. This book never dropped out of the top six. That's crazy. That's unfucking real numbers, man. Five issues in the top six in four months. Incredible. Especially considering it's it's Secret War. You got fan service concepts because they could do anything they wanted. You got some of the best X-Books, but you got X-Books that referred to some of the best X-Books. So we got to take a break from the Decimation era and we got to relive some of the best stories. It was really, it was such a competitive market at Marvel because they were just pulling out the greatest hits. So it really is impressive. Speaking of greatest hits, pulling out legend veteran comic writer Jerry Conway to pen the ongoing series, brilliant. And having, you know, incredible superstar Ryan Stegman hop on and do the pencils, also brilliant. So brilliant that it's the second best-selling Renew Your Vows issue at 96,000 copies for the debut of the ongoing. The second and third issue together do not combine sell as much as the first issue. So there's a real quick tumble. 43, 41, 31. Spike back up to 37. 29, 25. Spike up to 29. 25, 23. Spike back up to 34. 22,000. So the book closes out the pre-Jody Hauser era having fallen down to 22,000 copies per issue having started at just under 100,000. That it's a, it's a real tough tumble. That's, a, you know, it's at a fourth of what it was selling, and that's rough. But not unexpected, and that doesn't, you know, we saw great things happen in that range, and after those kinds of drops in our MC2 coverage and the coverage of stuff around it. So, you know, we know that even when these things are not just amazing numbers, that doesn't mean they don't create an amazing fan base, and that doesn't mean that they don't create brilliant stories that can be really fertile ground for even more brilliant stories. Yeah, because while I don't have anywhere near the same affection for the ongoing that I do for the miniseries, I think the ongoing's terrific. Yeah. And if somebody was like, how do I get into Mayday Parker if this next upcoming, you know, Spider-Man Infinity comic isn't brilliant, I'm just going to be like, you know what, just read about Annie. It's fine. I want to point out that the only issues of Renew Your Vows 1 through 12 to not be in the top 100 are issues number 7, 
11 and 12, right? It is a very different story during the Jody Hauser era, which I think is just a little better. It maybe reads a little more fun, but there is a huge spike to 62,000 copies for the first issue. Renew Your Vows 13. That's a great number that really reflects something I like to see. You know, if the main team of this book is one man and two women, it's actually really cool that that's the way the creative team breaks out for Jody, Nick, and Ruth. Of course, not shortchanging the letterer, Joe Caramagna, but, you know, he's kind of in every book. He's a little bit more of a Captain America, just bouncing book to book. You know what I mean? That's a letterer's job. They're everywhere, right? Uh, This, after that 62,000 copies, it is a steady decline issue by issue with no end in sight through the end, uh, tumbling immediately to 20,000 and ending just about 15,000. So it's an unfortunate end to a very promising book. I like it. I think it's fun and I'm excited to talk about it. But, you know, it is one of those, the sales kind of don't lie about the way people felt about it. It certainly doesn't reflect the way its fans felt about it. But it's a shame this didn't resonate with more audiences. I mean, it's something I think we will continue to wrestle with for a while. Um, But, you know, Mayday recognizes these numbers in her uh, counterpart from another universe. They are spider sisters in this and they're they're fighting to get through it. I would also point out that it's of note that while I don't want to get too ahead of myself on the numbers, but we're going to take a look at a Spider-Verse miniseries whose numbers do not reflect the word Spider-Verse in the title. So it might just be about a trajectory for general comic sales for the big two and about why there's a lot, you know, broader offering. I think it's really great that, you know, team favorite Taboo of the Black Eyed Peas, who has done some incredible fucking work. It's, you know, it's one of those things where like you don't associate the Black Eyed Peas (laughs) with excellent cerebral mystic and horror comics. So when you have to say that some of the best cerebral horror comics you've ever read are by a member of the Black Eyed Peas, you just start You sound like a crazy person when you say it to other people. (laughs) Yeah, and you start playing all of their greatest hits in your head and you're like, no, but what I'm telling you is um, you're 2000 and late and these comics are 3000 and great. I'm really serious. You know, that's not something I could have seen Marvel doing like 10 years ago. I think, you know, things a little bit more along the line of J.J. Abrams' son doing a Spider-Man comic is, I think that's a little bit more what you expect. And maybe we're going to be stuck reading it. And I say stuck in the spiderest of ways. You know what I mean? Because I never would have read any of this if it hadn't been for this fucking project. I'm telling you that right now. The name Spider-Man does not get me to pick up a book, or it didn't get me to pick up a book, but like reading the things, compelling myself, finding a compelling reason to read a lot of the things I always wanted to know more about has really given me perspective. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I mean, I, even more so than you, would never have touched any of this stuff because I didn't even have the same connection to MC2. There was just no way on any of this. Spider-Man is your reference point for everything else that is happening in the Marvel Universe and as your kind of control group, your baseline becomes such a fascinating character to just sort of understand based on, you know, what's happening with Spider-Man, what kind of crossovers they're doing, how they're doing events, 
how they're doing alternate universe titles and seeing the choices that get made for Spider-Man. I think, especially as an X-Men fan, because as an X-Men fan, you, if you send an X-Men fan that is our age, you are still stuck in this mentality that the X-Men are the most important, best-selling, can-do-no-wrong feature of Marvel Comics. And that simply hasn't been the case for a long time. And getting the perspective on the character that really is most of the time their best-selling character and their best-selling property, seeing what that character is up to gives you a lot, much more grounded information, and it really is a reality check. I will love the X-Men forever. To me, they are the most important, but they do not always sell like the most important, and you cannot make financial and editorial decisions about what to do with a book, with a line, with a character, whatever, based on characters and books that often don't sell great for whatever reason they don't. And so, you know, my my leap is always towards like, well, you know, whatever is happening with the X-Men, like that's that's driving the entire Marvel universe. And it's simply not true. Spending this time with Spider-Man, it's becoming a lot more instinctual for me to be like, hey, remember, you know, who you can really look at to start to paint the broader picture of what's going on. To that point, as I was looking up sales figures, I couldn't help but notice how often Renew Your Vows wound up alongside some of the lower selling, hyper-saturated at that point, X-Men solo titles. Like, you know, Gambit and Rogue sold around Renew Your Vows a lot. Just like, you know, not a book that... And here's the thing. I think that if the market will allow you even six issues of a book, then you did it. Now it exists. If the market allows it, it's valid, I guess. Except Trouble. Trouble will never be valid. Trouble was never valid. It will remain invalid. Maybe someday we'll do trouble. <laughs> but I'm hard-pressed to think of another character who's had multiple universes focused around AU versions of their children and copycats. It's really hard outside of, like, Batman or Superman. But, you know, for all the ways Captain America and Thor and Iron Man have come to very well dominate the cultural stratosphere of Marvel superheroes as an identity in like the social norm it's still spider-man and it's still frankly a little bit more like a wolverine who can sell a line of books to comic readers yeah and you know as much as we love captain america thor and iron man i think the love for spider-man in a very different way from those three is about like that could be me if i were a superhero i would probably be a lot more like spider-man i would be a mess i would not have a ton of money i would not have been born in the 40s and frozen in ice i would not be a god we love to watch those characters but yeah they are not quite real to us in the same way spider-man is The first thing that stood out to me was how fascinating the depiction of Peter Parker is here. Are you talking about how he's hot? Well, oh my God, how fucking hot. Like literally my first note is, oh, hey, hot Pete. <laughs> Spelling for Annie is cute and makes sense. Oh, wow. All the X-Men are missing. <laughs> so like my notes for this are sort of 
in relation to the fact that they work so hard to make this feel like a familiar Peter, they don't want us to have to do any work to contextualize where this is in their life because it's never. That's one of the things that, love it or hate it, the artifice of the theme park is really excellent at creating nostalgia for a time that never existed. And that's something that we've noted in a lot of these totemic symbology comics. This doesn't just pass the Spider-Man zeitgeist test. This defines it. This immediately informs me the version of Peter I'm dealing with, why I know him, where I know him from, where in his life I am with him. This makes Peter feel like an old friend I'm peering in on. I mean, I really do agree with that. And the time that it is, is never. It's not just that it is a thing that didn't happen. There is throughout the entire story that we're going to look at into the final volume of it. It's not even that time is standing still because there's literally a time jump. Peter and MJ look basically the same at the start as they do in the end. And it's, you know, 18-ish years, 16-ish years. So you think they would, to a certain degree, age, which, you know, we keep it tight these days. You got to be looking good. So it's not like completely insane that they still look really young when they are parents to a 16-year-old. But I think there's something really smart about kind of suspending the two of them in time when it comes to physical appearance and aging and sort of how they relate to each other. By the very last issue, this still feels like the Peter and MJ repartee you could have had in the like three or four issues right before their marriage was erased. And just as deep as that, I think this feels like a version of their marriage that we're all comfortable with. Yes. Like, I don't know that this ever was their marriage. Frankly, I don't know Spider-Man outside of this podcast and the JMS run that well, and that's something I've always copped to with a lot of this. So I'm digging into the narrative of Renew Your Vows as an opportunity to understand what a Spider-Man fan would look from, from this relationship and the depiction of it. One second. And I think we're meant to associate this sort of earnest, down on your luck well hot dog maybe someday kind of spirit with an automatic I root for him mm-hmm. and I don't not don't get me wrong I don't not I think it's important to remember that part of it though is a shorthand for every man I actually don't know that anything about these conversations are particularly like the character of Peter Parker I think he's kind of a sad sap and I don't know that I think Peter Parker is a sad sap but like the art the dynamic the ability to create a reference to something that doesn't exist is so masterful and you know this harkens to a lot of the best art of the last 20 years of Spider-Man the Hubert's you know clearly the Romita's the incredible work by Ryan Stegman who we're gonna look at here but you know over on the main titles there's a lot to appreciate and I think just as much as the writing, which is very strong, sells this, the art is just so perfect. Oh, absolutely. I mean, the art is fantastic. It really does complete the package. And, you know, I think given the nature of this particular part of Battle World and what's going on in this world, there is a beaten down quality to everybody in this story. And I think it's kind of smart to start off with a Peter who is a little bit, you know, a little bit sad. Like he said, like he 
he's not Peter at the top of his game. And given where things go, I think that makes a lot of sense. At the same time, I think it makes it a little easier to intro into this particular husband and father version of Peter. And I think when this series ends, we lock into much more a Peter that we is kind of what you would expect in a regular Spider-Man title. Speaking of things you would expect in a regular Spider-Man title, one of the challenges of this book for me was understanding the story that it was meant to tell. And so fucking fascinating is this is technically the main villain's first appearances, Regent, (laughs) who would go on to appear in Amazing Spider-Man Volume 4 a total of six times before disappearing for good with one minor appearance in Secret Empire number zero. This is Regent's first appearance and like I thought this was going to be something where like they'd been building up to Regent forever and like I thought this was going to be a very different relationship to this character. So finding out that this was the introduction to this all-powerful villain was tricky because don't we see him get defeated here? That was a funny thing for me. So like timeline wise, this is June 2015. His appearance in 616 continuity when things have been restored after the end of Secret Wars is in October of 2015. So, you know, Dan Slott knew that he was introducing this character here to immediately bring him back in the main Marvel universe after things reset, which I think is a really fascinating way of doing things. I do take your point i don't want to say shooting yourself in the foot but it may give certain readers some questions about why uh we would see the character in the main universe as a big threat knowing what we saw in secret wars but i am you know for my money the fact that it's a really unique and different choice and i can't think of a time where i've seen it done before i would have given it a shot for that alone it really is a daring move and i don't know no, I think I kind of like something about it because we could have gotten a different version of Regent. You know, his powers could have been clearly different in this other world. Now, I don't know. And the fact that he only has six appearances and we've actually read part of one of them. We've read the Web Warriors section from the back of one of them. Oh, yeah. It's kind of yeah. cool. Yeah. But I don't hate Regent. I thought he was like Ronan the Accuser for a minute. Like I was just like, oh, big guy with a hammer gonna kill your face. And then like, you know, turned out he's not the guy you thought from outer space it was right there this is a fun little punch him up like in fact one of the things that i thought was terrific was using the blocking the way they do for the panels for the two-page spreads is so reminiscent of you know that sort of like 90s cubert sylvestri kind of standard that and you know i'm just naming like these guys who really understand how to use form in this clever calibrated concise way and the repeated uh, framing the the blocking you know one of the things that's really charming about this book and I don't mean this like in an insulting way I mean this really complimentary it's kind of no frills blocking to be honest with you. it's just classic but it's classic in a way that classic works it's the staples of what makes a comic book visual story look good and I'm not sad for a lack of the because like you know I praise the amazingness of like guys like Kieran Gillen breaking the panels 
levels and you know we do stuff with gutters all the time in Spider-Verse and that's fucking great but there's something so dynamic about how well this tells what feels like it could be part seven of the Regent like until that last page this could be you know part seven of seven of the Regent crossover that is this universe's big summer crossover that culminates it feels like it could be that thing in part because it plays by so many rules that guys like Dan Slott play by so well we talk about company men versus like you know big thinkers this is a guy who said I'm going to use house style against you that's amazing I completely agree Secret Wars is already an odd kind of format shift what you can start with is unique in Secret Wars and I think everybody did it differently and to a pretty much universal degree with a Secret Wars book they all kind of started in media res these these universes while something weird is going on they all technically had to have been lived in everybody had memories of being in battle world but I think you're right in so far as this feels like we happen to be focusing on the Parkers in what is Regent's climactic chapter and I don't think every Secret Wars book was uh, successful in making me feel the same way that I actually believed that particular world was lived in and that the people there felt like they had existed previously in any capacity. This is really one where I I felt like this character's life really had played out and separate from that, Spider-Man is just kind of doing his own thing as he always does and now the two worlds are intersecting. There's also a really great component you just added to it that I hadn't considered. It's almost like what if Dan Slott was writing the Regent crossover and this is the Spider-Man issues where sometimes like it overlaps so close that you're seeing the same scene in two books. Right. Yeah. That, it feels like we're just seeing this. Like. Yeah. That's so great. I hadn't even thought of it that clearly, you know, in part because I was reeling from things like, oh, by the way, Moon Knight, Punisher, Night Thrasher, they're dead. <laughs> almost like to say, no, Punisher's not going to come in in the middle of this crossover. <laughs> Please don't worry. Don't worry. Uh, you know, though, this starts something that makes me just, I don't know, I'm all kinds of like un- confused, okay? Because mm-hmm. what we're going to do is we're about to enter a world where it kind of reads like perhaps every spider person's secret greatest hope is to be an X person. <laughs> and we're entering a world where the X-Men's name means so fucking much. It is overwhelming to me that Regent, according to the pages of number one and the recap for number two, Regent specifically defeats the Avengers using the stolen powers of the X-Men. The X-Men are such a key weapon and card and device in Renew Your Vows that I really reached a point where I was like, whose book is this? And it's funny because that does continue through other authors and it just simply doesn't feel like there was, you know, an editor or something that was saying to them, like, you have to make the X-Men really important. It's somehow happening all the way through, but it's funny that it's kind of a seed planted here that really grows throughout the series for, you know, I don't want to say no reason, but it's interesting. Let's say that. And the twist that 
Regent is so powerful that he can like fucking rip Hulk's arm off. And we purposely lose sight of exactly what's going on there to focus on the Venom situation such that the reveal on the last page is a fucking brain twister. I really appreciate it. I think that's really well handled. The balance is that I wasn't exactly sure what was going on. I could have maybe used a few more words. I understand that there's a lot to be said about the month-long wait, but because culture is now designed for such volume-heavy drops and for the speed of such drops to be so much more consistent, reading this monthly, I'd have chewed off my own eyebrows. I would not have known what the fuck was going on, and I really do see how this book held in those sales figures. Yeah, it packs a lot in. I think maybe for me, a, a minorly missed opportunity because we really need to establish that Regent has become the Regent Baron of this piece of battle world. He is now the most powerful. That's going to be the really important thing for this story broadly. But this first issue, the idea that Spider-Man will kill Venom to keep his family safe is a very important one. It is a distinct characteristic of this particular Peter Parker. And, you know, what I appreciate is that this book doesn't go and therefore he is dark or, you know, now he is unrecognizable as the Peter Parker that, you know, now he has gone on a trajectory that we cannot follow him. He remains relatable, joke cracking, loving up Mary Jane. So very good. I like to believe Peter Parker, but he did do something that other Peter Parkers would not have done. And it doesn't entirely also feel like you can only understand when you're a father. It just is this thing that this Peter Parker did, but it's really important and we don't get a lot of time to focus on it. It really was something that I had to sort of fully come to terms with later on in the series. Also, Mary Jane, like, totally, she's like, yeah, definitely kill him. So they're they're in on it together. But that's an important tone-setting moment. And the fact that the tone that they set is not the one that you usually get when a character who doesn't kill kills. These things felt really important to me, and they end up being important to the core of the characters, but we don't get a ton of time to sort of process, which it all ends up working out. But, you know, Regent really hogging up a lot of that spotlight. One of the things that I do want to personally thrust into the spotlight is the charm of Annie (laughs) right off. I think there really does need to be a middle ground. Now, as somebody who has met children... You know, um, also has worked with them in education. You know, there's sort of like two speeds that I seem to see in media right now. There's sort of like the hyper infantilized little baby speak of Molly Hayes in Runaways. And then there's sort of like this other end of the spectrum that's like eight year olds playing Euphoria doing sexual favors on Roblox for NFT snap bracelets. And I really need something in between those two extremes. And I feel like Annie is one of the best massaged in-betweens because like I love like a precociously intelligent child but like Megan and Brian Braddock's daughter is basically that latter category I just described but played by like Charlize Theron (laughs) right as a baby just like an adult Charlize Theron walking around going all of this but I'm a baby and like I really from moment one Annie reads with an authentic authenticity that I really needed for this series to succeed. I absolutely agree with that. She becomes a really important, 
important anchor point because she is the child of Peter Parker and Mary Jane. But that is a role that can get you into some really kind of boring, eye-rolly, I'm-not-interested situations. And the flip side of that being that when somebody writes this kind of story and they're aware of the trap that a child, the kind of albatross around your neck that a child can feel like in a story like this, they kind of go too far on the other side of the spectrum and, you know, try and make them too relatable or too jokey or too precious. Um, The fact that she's a great kid, she does have a kind of precociousness. She does. She is able to banter with her parents who are banter experts, but she is not so desperate to seem charming. She's not so brilliant. She's not so anything is just really the right note that she is a little bit younger, not a baby, but not yet a teenager is also, I think, pretty helpful for a lot of reasons. But she really does just come off fantastically well. I realized it doesn't start here, but I'm going to start bringing it up now because it will become important later. A big problem for me in reconciling all this stuff with Annie and her age is the fact that come the second volume, she is sometimes drawn like she's three. She is sometimes drawn like she's eight. And she's sometimes drawn like she's somewhere between 14 and 25. And it gets disconcerting from time from time to time. There's also sort of a whiplash that occurs. It's something that like if you marathon a sitcom like, you know, the affirmation modern family, those kids sort of go from from like not knowing how to say the word menstruating and being monstruating to like the next season having like trying to get it on storylines. And I understand that that can be the human experience as well. But when you're trying to handle like a coming of age transitioning for a character, you kind of do need to maybe apply a little bit clearer, a defined line because there are times that, yeah, Annie feels kind of like Gracie from the nanny and there's times she feels like when she was in Californication and I'm not sure what version of Annie I'm really supposed to be connecting with which is one of the reasons that the art choices for the later art team are so stellar and really define the book in an awkward coming of age almost like Judy Bloom for superheroes I don't know how to explain it but man that later art is so perfect for this book uh, but this art is still beautiful. It's still stunning. It just, yeah, when everything is drawn to look like a model, sometimes I'm not sure if that's meant to be Mary Jane's face or little Annie's. And the only hint is that she's looking up. I will say one of the good things about it is that it pretty firmly establishes that this is a book, maybe even a little bit more about Peter and Mary Jane than it is about Annie. I think Annie really starts to at least equally split the share of focus or sometimes, you know, hog it a little bit for herself makes a lot of sense. But this first one, this is still Renew Your Vows. We're talking really about Peter and Mary Jane here. And the Secret Wars arc especially really feels like this is about them and the life they would have had had an insane thing not happened. The speed at which this book moves is wild. And it's like, oh, girl, you're going to school today. Don't use your powers. Stop floating on the ceiling. Oh, shit. Like a super monster D-Man. Looking great, buddy. Right? I love D-Man in general, but I specifically love the D-Man 
wears such a baller version of the yellow daredevil costume uh just such a big fan great look d-man looking phenomenal here and regent is oh man that splash panel of regent here's how i feel okay regent looks large Oh, he's a thick boy. But he's a thick boy in like a dark side kind of way. Yes. And but so then he's in a different class. So now I'm kind of like, well, but are you Terax big? Are you are you Hulk big? Are you okay? So now I'm kind of like, this is one of those porn set things where the couch is smaller than a normal couch. So a guy who's six foot looks six foot three. And there's all sorts of weird tricks with coffee cups and shit, right? I bet you that was like a really really small sound so the other thing that really stands out here is the look of the circuitry has a very specific very this incredible caliber of artist vibe and i have some concerns that where it's white it looks kind of foamy it looks kind of soft kind of cloudsy i am a little concerned that instead of looking quite like the commanding overpowered very intense and frightening spider-man villain for the ages they were hoping to create due to his powers being a suit and perhaps some of the three tone aesthetic choices that were made he winds up looking a little bit like bloodshot just straight out of valiant comics and while i am a fan of valiant comics and bloodshot it just doesn't have the visual that I think they're hoping for and that the Sinister Six when they do show up look so similar six doesn't help anything I love this book but the thing that trapped me in this book's world was not the Vils. I think that's totally fair I mean it's funny because were this any other villain on any other title I might have been like yeah but you know it's Secret Wars they've only got four issues none of this is going to matter after it's reset uh you know he is scary enough and the book tells us that he's regent and that you know he's the most powerful one he killed all the other ones so we understand the threat not every visual thing can hit the mark 100 of the time i'm okay with it this particular one is funny because he will then go on to appear in 616 in the same outfit <laughs> so it becomes a little bit more of a problem there because he's got to be a threat all over again so you know the prospect that it's not the most threatening not super important for four issues but especially if you are going to bring him back and in this particular context i do get what you're saying i tend to focus so much on the width and the circuitry that i did not have the same reservations as i was reading i 100% see what you're saying for me honestly the biggest one was the booties boots are tough to pull off man they really are but sometimes they just look a little too much like really comfy stockings and comfort doesn't scare me i hear where you're coming from i for him in particular it's a weird thing because
because of the the fact that he'll be back with the Sinister Six. That is to me the perfect example of like you know there got to be a villain. So I you know that we got one. They showed up. I buy it. The element that propels this book forward really is the family dynamic and the idea that this family needs to be together. The kind of unhinged nature of Spider-Man in the black suit is a really fascinating level to add to this. One of the things that makes this book really great is how quickly it moves. I really like the Power Pack Kids and Mockingbird. You know, that whole bit really does add something to the story with Prowler and Ben Urich. There's moments where I get a little unsure of the intention that the book has for the like main narrative. I think it comes across really well in hindsight, but I wonder how I would have felt if I'd read this not knowing Annie was going to have a future. I wonder if reading this would have filled me with the same, this is how it all began, that I have for it. You know, critically, I love it, but I could maybe see where readers might have dropped off after the third issue a bit. I completely agree. It's the opposite end of what we were talking about before with issue one is actually issue seven of Regent's story that we just don't see. The final issue of this really does feel like if you didn't know that there was more coming, it was really written as though like, and her journey was just beginning. Like you, you won't believe what happens next. Partially, I'm sure that was like a bit of a pitch. Like what if we pick this up? But that's how a really good slice of a world and a story should be in a thing like Secret Wars. Like it really, to a certain degree, kind of there should be a feeling of regret that you will not get to see how it plays out because the universe isn't going to continue. Otherwise, the stakes of the fact that Battle World exists in the first place really kind of get lowered. And I do think in much the same way that like, you know, in the Inferno world, you know, the world can't be like that all the time. So it just doesn't really feel like, you know, it feels like it has to get resolved. It's not just that the resolution isn't perfect, but that like the story feels kind of not done. I, I, it feels like a feature, not a bug to me. I agree. The fact that Regent is specifically set on getting Spider-Man's powers <laughs> and he thinks this will help him fight Doom. And he's like, <laughs> right? Okay. I cannot think of anybody that Dr. Doom thinks gigglier of fighting than Spider-Man. <laughs> You know, it's funny because I, we can spoil this because if you've been reading, you already know that Annie is getting this power wherein her spider sense is more prophetic. You could have sold me on that, on part of the, like, one of the minor differences of this world is that Peter's spider sense had developed further. That there's this big a to-do about Peter's spider sense when there are precogs <laughs> that he could have grabbed. There are X-Men precogs that he could have grabbed. There are X-Men precogs that I can't believe he didn't grab. I have already played my hand insofar as I'm very much willing to forgive silly things like that for this book because we're only getting four issues. We got to move through it. There's got to be a reason. 
but yeah, I mean, like I'm spitballing like eight different things that it could have been that I think might have honored the reality of who Spider-Man is as a threat a little bit more. Yeah. And the book races toward a pretty cool conclusion. I think teasing Annie as like spider kid on the cover of four, even though it doesn't really manifest in this miniseries proper. It's pretty cool. I think a lot of the posing is so visually dynamic. It's so well directed, but the fourth issue does perhaps read like a footnote, right? So like monthly or, you know, individual issue wise, this would not have been my favorite. But again, as a trade, reading this with the context of knowing the bigger picture, when you get that like beautiful red splash, it's all red, white, and black, which is actually a compliment to Regent, who is all red, white, and black. The contrast of everywhere around that being this sort of blue and gray cool, there is so much to be said for the tonal contrast of the blue and red, the dynamic visual created by using these color filters is such a revelation. And I think as much as I love the world of Krakoa and the vibrancy, I really love seeing what you can do when you choose to make a page very palette limited as well. And this is just such, again, masters being masters of visual craft. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. And I think writing choices, like having Mary Jane and Annie decide decide to join in, you know, decide that they want to help Peter and they can do something is, I, I don't think, setting aside the fact that this is a one-off series and we can do whatever we want, I think most writers would not go that route. And the fact that Mary Jane just, to an eight-year-old, like, there's even a degree to which it's maybe problematic, and if there was one thing missing from this entire story, all five volumes, it is that we never really got to have a, like, are we, like, bad parents for doing this? But, yeah, she has superpowers. They're in a bind. Let her fight. And then the first thing that Mary Jane does is try and grab her own. Feels very true to the character, but also, like, almost 90% of the time, that is not what a writer has the non-powered characters or the children do. So I think it was just a lot of really bold swings that to me paid off. I mean, obviously because the, the, the story continued for all of these characters, but even, you know, trying to kind of think of it in the moment, it, they paid off to me. I am somebody who is so like eye rolly about, you know, the motivation to do something as a parent, but Peter sort of coming back from death, hearing that region is going to attack his child and breaks out of the tank. And he even looks, it's, this is similar to the killing Eddie Brock and Venom thing. He looks kind of insane when he leaps out and goes to fight Regent having broken out of the tank. He's, you know, spitting out the tank juice, whatever it is. And he, he looks a little bit mad, but it, it makes sense in this context. I, mean, I don't know. Maybe I'm charmed by it, but it's such an important thing. The fact that they've got this guy depowered, you know, his suit doesn't work anymore. They're, they're going to catch him. And then he grabs Annie by the throat. He's a big old dude. So he can still probably kill the super powered kid. And Peter basically stops him with a joke. <sighs> 
because it's Peter and because this whole thing is cracking wise and doing jokes, like part of me likes it, but I just, I don't know that I bought that this dude would laugh and that that would be such a good opening that, you know, Peter would be able to get this punch in that would save Annie. Uh, I do just kind of give it up to, it's a, it's a secret war series. We got to wrap it up real quick. We got to allow, suspend some disbelief, allow some things to happen, but it's just such a big moment in this whole story and it's a silly one on a kind of different level and i can't help but notice that part of the way they did it was by turning the tide of popular opinion against him <laughs> did you see that big thick man that big thick, beautiful man grabbed that little girl oh my god he's manhandling her what kind of man does that oh he can't be our king anymore everybody turn on the king because one time a big powerful man one time did something unfair to somebody less powerful than him. <laughs> really? <laughs> Revelation. Huh. Yeah. We got to wrap it up somehow. Yeah. And that's the thing. You know, a lot of times I make a comment of if you couldn't tell the big story in the amount of time you had, you shouldn't have tried to tell the big story. <laughs> yeah. But this is a rare example of where you told as much of the big story as you had to. It left a really able playing ground for a lot of writers. It left interesting bits out there I think this was a really positive experience you know the ending is a little the end of a pilot for me and if this was like a two hour pilot for the Renew Your Vows TV show okay okay if this was all we ever got I'd probably have to give this like a C minus Ooh, wow if this was all we ever got I would have been too annoyed by what I didn't know and wanted huh. but knowing that we get more knowing that we see this world you know, it's actually one of the things that like growing up, I knew, I knew there was a lot more stuff that talked about Days of Future Past. So like as a kid who like everyone talked about Days of Future Past and I knew Rachel would come from it because I knew who Rachel was before I started reading because my dad and uncle would talk about the comics. So they were like, well, and there's Rachel and she's their kid from the Days of Future Past world. And so like, because I knew Days of Future Past was legitimate and would have long lasting effects, I think as a kid, I grew up up loving however as a kid i was alive for age of apocalypse but because i was like eight i found the whole thing deeply overwhelming to sort of like a kid who was still like in second fucking grade you know and i think that's part of something i've come to realize that we discussed in another episode somewhere that like part of it for me was i remember aoa coming out and didn't love it i wonder if it's that it was such a big thing that like i had to accept and it's how a lot of people probably feel about krakoa where it happened live for them and they're like mm -mm, not my X-Men and who can blame them if it's not their X-Men it's not their X-Men and I'm not here to tell you how to have fan don't I feel you and we do know those people exist with Krakoa that is always a valid way to feel and of course you know I think we strive really hard to say these things weren't for me I didn't connect with them and never to sort of criticize the quality I think that's really true of something like Age of Apocalypse where it's just for whatever oh yeah you know and I do remember we did talk about this it was during Heroes Reborn because Age of Apocalypse was really big for me I really did love it and I think part of it was that it was my first exposure to alternate timelines for the X-Men and I was kind of getting 
something to do because I couldn't get a hold of Days of Future Past and there was other stuff that I didn't know and I was doing all comic stuff on my own. So in lacking in resources, I kind of just was was gung-ho for the whole thing because I basically didn't know any better. For me, this I think is B, B minus. Kind of for the things that I said, it's such a one-off that you know, Secret Wars is such a one-off that it's tougher to criticize stuff there. And the fact that it manages to do some, I think, almost unique things when it comes to the type of story it's telling and the way it's telling that story as compared to other Secret Wars stories gets it some really high marks for me. I definitely get your critiques. I just, I think for me, I didn't notice them until I heard you say them. And I, I see all those things. They just kind of didn't color my experience at the time. But like I said, with context, A, loved yeah, it. Yeah. So it's not that I feel the series of Renew Your Vows doesn't live up to the value of the initial miniseries, because the more we talked about it, I do think I had a few more issues with the miniseries than I thought. And that's okay. You know, I still love the work. It's still a very transformatively good work. But the series itself, it was so unbelievable to me how fast it went Spider-Girl. Yeah, I mean, I think at a certain point, though, that's maybe the most exciting prospect of the whole thing. I just think when you put Peter and MJ in the position of parents, they're really cool parents and it's fun and we get to, we do get to see a lot of them. We definitely get to see more of them than we did uh, in Spider-Girl and they're more interesting. But the focus really does start to creep over to Annie and I think that only makes a certain amount of sense. And I, you know, totally, yes. But also, it felt like Jerry Conway was sort of making perhaps a number of the same sort of Spider-Girl world-esque mistakes and I don't mean that in like um, a rude way because I am not Jerry Conway and uh, you know Jerry Conway is a legend of his industry he is responsible for characters like Punisher and Ben Riley. he was responsible for the Gwen Stacy death he wrote a bunch of Justice League he's responsible for the DC Marvel Superman versus the Amazing Spider-Man now the guy was born in in 1952. So he is 70 years old now. And conversely, it's of note that Tom DeFalco is now 19. Tom DeFalco was born in 1950 and is now 72. So they are very much contemporaries of one another. And while I think perhaps it's not that it goes Spider Girl like, oh, now it's about the kid, huh? It just sort of pivots for Spider Girl's shtick really hard really fast. I feel like we quickly get into the let's relive some of the best moments and if that's the point of this title, cool. I'm really positive on that but I also feel perhaps that we're doing ourselves a disservice by never really being willing to move out of kind of that same same for classic. I definitely get what you're saying. I not even so much in pushback but because I think you're right. I just think the slight tweaks and differences for me made a difference in terms of frustrating me less. The fact that 
Jerry Conway's Annie is eight. There is an expectation that teens will be cool. And, you know, teens are tastemakers. Like, I, I think we're now getting to a place where we're like, teens are te tastemakers for teens. But as adults, we don't really have to care about that. I think that's been a slow shift. But you do expect some degree of believable cool for teens, whether or not it's cool to you personally. And when adult men write 15-year-old girls, they don't really seem particularly cool. You don't expect the same thing for an eight-year-old. You are sort of impressed with uh, precociousness, but there's no sense that eight-year-olds sort of are deep into things like fashion, that they know slang, that, you know, there's a, a certain lack of independence that eight-year-olds are a lot more tied to their parents. So if it's somebody who has been a parent or is of parental age, it is not so cringe seeing them try to write friendships and slang and, you know, to present, here's a cool kid. It's a lot easier to say, like, here's a cool eight-year-old than a cool 16-year-old. And Conway is writing an eight-year-old. It works better than seeing, feeling loose and slamming heat for the first time and just head slapping so hard. I could not believe this is what somebody thought was going to be cool. It takes a lot of pressure off the book to have to worry about those types of things, but it does mean that it is kind of wading into the same territory. I do see what you're saying there. Because the trade-off is that if in some ways, Tom DeFalco always wrote Mayday a little bit like a Swans Crossing teen, that sort of sense of like, I'm 15, but I talk like a 42-year-old divorcee. And we always kind of had that issue there. And the great thing is he found a way around it. Jerry Conway just said, what if there's another Spider-Woman? What if there's also MJ? Because what this volume of Renew Your Vows brings that is like A++ is as much as I sort of think like Spiderling isn't my favorite name sometimes. It's so cute, but it's also kind of like, eh. I'm so into Spinneret. I mean, first of all, her name sounds like an X-Tube category. Second of all, I am so enamored of how it's a transformative moment to add her right from that first cover. It's actually a weird number of pages before you get to it, considering it's on the cover. Like, she is literally just spinneret right the fuck on that cover. But it isn't until page 18 of the digital, which is how I read it, which is nearly the conclusion of the first story, that MJ finally swings in using the Regent suit to copy Spider-Man's powers or kind of like siphon them, which I was like, this is so cute. And then they're constantly like, what a hindrance. <laughs> and I was like, oh, I guess it's not cute. I guess couples don't share everything. Yeah, I mean, I do love the conceit that for all MJ has to be married to Spider-Man and will find herself in situations where she is attacked, that she has shown herself to be willing and able to push back and fight, but has no powers, giving her powers just kind of makes sense at a certain point. And it's something I think in a lot of superhero books that try and fold in normal friends, it's always a question of like, you know, I mean, Buffy is always the go-to example. Like Willow gets powers and becomes more powerful than Buffy. Xander, there really is a point at which despite the fact that he has always been there, they never should have had him there. He has no powers. He is very unsafe. He is very breakable. And I was surprised that it was always like, no, he gets to stay with us and go out in the field despite the field being too strong for him to compete in because he's our friend and we don't want to leave him out rather than like, what can we do to equip and arm this person who has shown that they're ready 
to be part of a fight that is ongoing and that is at a level that their baseline doesn't meet. I like that MJ, they were just like, she's clearly a hero. She just needs access to the tools. So let's get her the tools. And that's actually to kind of highlight a point that is sort of highlighted here. That's one of the things that I always thought made Angel and Buffy feel like two completely unrelated worlds. It takes Cordelia like three seasons to stake a vampire. And it's such a big deal that Xander needs help. But then fucking Fred is out there and she's like machete in each hand, blowtorch on her leg. And she's just chopping down demons like they're nothing. And there is sort of a a loss of the sense of dangerous mortality in subtle ways. And that's something that, you know, frankly, Angel played up on with a lot of their trickery. They knew that because it was such a bigger than life, life or death, bigger than life situation. They could get away with certain twists and subtle ways. And that's something that I think this book uses to its advantage. Because you're so focused on Annie, MJ is a really interesting comparison. Now, here's the thing. If you are someone who was 13 years old when Mayday Parker started coming out in 1998, then it is very possible that you, reading this book in 2015, 17 years older, perhaps now had a child yourself at 30, and you're suddenly seeing Spider-Girl, who you remember being so cool from your childhood, and you've got a daughter, and there's a connection, and I only highlight that because it was weird, the number of people that were like, I suddenly love Ant-Man because I am also a dad. And I was like, oh, okay, okay. So I think there's something to be said about the connectivity and accessibility of the cyclical nature of Annie coming due on the promise of Spider-Girl and the way that MJ exists for an age of, and I'm saying this with a great amount of hope in my heart, like I'm, I'm really saying this with a positive focus on that things could get better, an age of male comic readers at the big two who recognize the contributions, successes, and value of women, not just in comics, but in their lives in a world where men are becoming more aware of women's needs and women's rights. Hopefully, perhaps, the added bonus of a cool spider woman who you know and is familiar, hopefully that was enough to get people to read. I mean, ultimately, we saw the numbers were not there long term, but there is something about the fact that it's more than just a May Day clone. This is like two women. And we are kind of on opposite ends of the spectrum from the medium that was Mayday. Like we have an eight-year-old and we have mid-30s, right? Maybe even younger. Yeah, you know. I feel like they might have had kids. I mean, they look so fucking good. MJ, I can believe it. MJ, you know, will never be 50, but could be 50 and just not a wrinkle on her. Peter, whatever. I like that we are never touching teen territory. It's rough territory. It, I trust somebody like Jody Hauser much more in, in that realm, but I, I think it was good to stay away it did that is the sharpest division that says this is not mayday like we might steal a lot of spider girl's tricks but we are not going to try to do teen language teen stuff you know honestly like the the person that ends up having most of like the teen problems in terms of like this is weird and creepy and overly horny and sexual and i don't want it is fucking 10 year old little normie in the first (laughs) in the first volume there's i can't 
can't even begin to discuss how deeply, weirdly uncomfortable he makes me. He, he's fine once they get to the head his... trauma. <laughs> yes, that knocks something out of him. But like the first couple appearances where he's like, get me pictures of that eight year old. <laughs> so weird. He's just such a horny little fucking goblin, literally. And it's not just that Normie is kind of creepy, which he is. It's the weird amount of time it takes to pay off creepy little Normie because the setup on this book is so weird that it's like the first few issues kind of tell this really progressive and media res story. And I use weird meaning unusual, not weird meaning anything insulting or negative. It's actually a really fun first arc, but like the method of storytelling, this slow, uh, like very thought out progression makes the normie stuff feel so interminably creepy. It does. And like, it's especially because the first notes are very menacing and horny, but it's a 10 year old, which is just like a as an immediate gag, it's funny and like kind of silly, but also you're like, oh, we know it's an Osborne, so there's going to be a thing. But then because they do kind of take their time to pay it off, it's it's just kind of a slight. I don't want even, I don't want to say miss, but like mismatch. And as soon as he as soon as he stops the horniness and is just kind of a villain, it immediately is a little bit better. And then as the story progresses, I tend to like him more and more conceptually as well as liking him as a character but it takes a minute to get there and it is an odd minute because i was convinced he was norman in this child's body for a while i could definitely and then, see that and then like the reveal the way it's done him slowly walking through the lair revealing that he's been injecting himself with chemicals since 10 years old so that he can be like the best possible osborne you expect him to like slowly take off his robe and reveal his creepy Willem Dafoe body. <laughs> like, it's really odd. I think the idea was a very mature writer writing a very mature character, but then contrast, it's a child, which yeah, I'm shocked he didn't make comments about how frustrated he is that he is limited by the capabilities of his child body. I mean, he's like basically saying <laughs> this was really uncomfortable and I don't know that like there's any real thing to why jerry conway left renew your vows i would hope it wasn't on bad terms but there is definitely an extent to which it feels like he just very suddenly left one i think 10 year old normie in contrast to she's eight but like same age annie is one of the examples of like doing spider girl over again that i just maybe not i end up liking this normie about the same amount eh, maybe not about the same amount but I, I like him to a similar degree to how I like spider girl normie so you know it just kind of ends up being a net neutral which I think given that this is kind of this is a fast moving story that's really trying to make its case pretty quickly that was an example of like maybe we don't do spider family versus the Osborns again because it's pretty 
pretty tried and true and we've already had a, you know, character do it. And, you know, we just kind of see how that goes. Now, I did a little bit of quick digging and it appears that Jerry Conway did continue to work at Marvel after his departure from this title. So that's at least a good sign that it was probably a better departure than, you know, not. And I would really appreciate that. Like I said, I am very positive on a lot of what this book does, on a lot of what this book represents. And I agree with you so much that the idea of creating a competent comparative for Annie had to have been a huge part of the design of this book. Because one of the things that this book seeks to do from day one, from the first second even, is I feel like the book is trying to give me a very strong sense of what it means to be in this spider form. Like you said, you know, we've already seen this sort of normie thing before, so, you know, what's the difference? I think that might even be part of it. We're seeing this iteration of Spider-Man, but the what if here is, what if it was a family? I just feel like I never knew what this book was supposed to be from the outset, having done a bunch of investigation. I'm still not sure. I'm positive that I understand exactly what this book is meant to be, at least in the earliest years. I also really do wonder what the pitch was, what the hope to get out of it was. Was there, you know, when when Dan Slott pitched it, did he say like, and we can keep it going after Battle World, after, you know, when it started up again after uh, Secret Wars, were they like, we want to make the next Spider-Girl and because that property is kind of old, we want to just freshen everything up again like this could be a really big long-standing character i agree like you just kind of can't tell you know the fact that they're much more efficient with the storytelling and getting us where we need to be on the one hand makes me feel like spider girl but do it better on the other hand it's been a hot minute since we've had any kind of even mini series with these characters they appear in spider geddon but since then you know not really much and i'll be interested to see what happens in this latest round of Spider-Verse stuff, but it's, I don't know what it is. Is it an audition for possibly a movie or, you know, part of the Spider-Verse uh, animated movies? I can't really tell you, but I I would be okay with a lot of those options. Annie is a character that I would be interested in following. Now that she has interacted with Mayday, though, it, to me, was partially a reminder that, like, we actually kind of did already do this work, and I think in some ways with a character that was better established just due to the seniority? I don't know. It leads us to a lot of sort of difficult to answer questions about where we should be focusing our attention when it comes to AUs. It's one of the things that I think has been a little tricky about navigating where to go next with this show. I don't want to spend my whole life being a spider guy. Okay. I like other comic books too, and I don't want to just keep reading spider stuff, but they keep giving us interesting spider stuff, right? So we're trying to figure out where to go next and what AUs deserve our time. And this title in particular has a very loose sense of why I should care. I don't really care about the Mole Man as it relates to Spider-Man. Yeah, that was a tough starting villain. Like it is very rote. And of course you have foot soldiers 
soldiers, so you get to see everybody battle, and like you're pretty confident they're going to win. But mole man, I uh, you know for making a splash, I just don't know. And that's even the difficulty of it because like it's not just mole man; it's mole man, and then I guess like a lot of X Men, and then in the middle, it's all of Spider Man's greatest hits very quickly, and that just doesn't always work for me. Now, what did kind of work for me, and also kind of didn't work for me was I simultaneously loved the device of utilizing the same like N media res point as a way to get the story going over and over again that every issue kind of led back to the same door but I also maybe felt like that made it take a really long time for the book to get started and that was a little distressing I felt like I just couldn't get to the story because it was just starting so many times which I don't think is 100% helped by the fact that we do an eight-year time jump. That was probably a smart move in terms of getting some time with an eight-year-old daughter of Spider-Man, I think is kind of important and makes us invest more. But if that story is really kind of uncertain about what it's trying to be and doesn't have a really clear beginning, middle, and end over the broad course of its publishing, when we do the time jump, it's just kind of like they really wanted us to see the previously on so they produced it but it's still a previously on which is made even a little more frustrating to try and read by the two bonus stories shoved in the first issue (laughs) specifically because one two and three are meant to have this rhythm like you know there's a certain like pentameter that's necessary for rhyming to sound really good and you can like really hear the difference between like dr seuss and a greeting card you know what i mean like the rhythm the the pentameter of something really matters and reading one then these two backup stories then two three ruined everything for me actually and i loved the two backup stories i thought they were great but they came in the middle of a fluid arc that i was following for plot and i do have some comments on both backup stories i'll be 100 honest for exactly that reason i did not read them went and finished the arc and then went back you are 100 correct issue one i mean like i i can understand every argument in terms of like we give you a little variety we had a little fun with it we wanted to make a splash with this first issue it all makes sense to me but i then would pick a different three issue arc or a different place to start a three issue arc than the first issue because yes it 100 breaks the narrative flow and i chose not to engage with that i literally like as soon as i flipped the page and realized that we were done i just kind of said no and went to the i, I need to see how this ends first and And the number of parallels between the Earnest Adventures of Spider-Dad by Anthony Holden, (laughs) regular dad, who did every fucking thing on this story. I just need to remind everybody, like swept the floor after the office was closed, like literally did everything. I like it. It note for note matches (laughs) Spider-Baby. Like down to Sandman. Yeah. It note for note matches it. I'm sort of shocked by the digital art that got put to print. I love this style. It's not really often in a Marvel book outside of like some real rough villains on Cable Deadpool. And uh, obviously, I have to say it. It needs to be said. This Sandman is pretty hot in like a Steven Universe kind of way, right? Pretty big fan. Uh, But why is it here? I would have really loved a Renew Your Vows Zero, maybe. A Renew Your Vows Zero. 
renew your vows annual. Yep. Uh, uh, you know, all great ways to potentially charm us with a bunch of shorts by great artists and writers, great creators overall, that might really quickly just give us that feeling that this is a lived-in story and family that maybe doesn't need to spend so much time introducing you to them. I wish that that was the vibe. Yeah. I just feel like it's it just doesn't come through. You know, so much of comics has become packaging. And I've been really thinking about whether or not that's fair. Like, does the container fairly affect the product or not? And something I've been thinking about a lot, because like I said, I've been trying to figure out where to take this show next. What's what's our next step? And I've been thinking about how much a really good discography is like a comic unit. Where like, you know, to use some somewhat different, but I guess somewhat similar people. Uh, I remember when John Mayer was obviously problematic, but not yet despicable. And before he was irrelevant. And he made some really interesting music. And it was really challenging to listen to. There was a lot of very competent, capable influences. And, you know, when you pay 42000 a year to go to Berkeley School of Music before room and board, you should learn a bunch of stuff. And he would do these versions of songs, right? So, like, there's multiple versions of a lot of songs from those early years. There's an EP, Inside Wants Out. Then there's a record, Room for Squares. Then he re-recorded and remixed some of Room for Squares, plus added a bonus track when it was purchased by a larger record label. And there's references in some of those early songs. Like in City Love, he says we were covered in rain. And Covered in Rain is a different John Mayer song, but it was never put on a record. So you would have to know Covered in Rain from his live shows. And if you do, it's a rewarding Easter egg when he says Covered in Rain. And Jason Mraz had something very similar with Little You and I and You and I Both being sort of reflectively affectionate partner songs. A lot of artists like Janet Jackson will do hyper mashups of songs pulling together a ton of different elements. But I think no one better turned their songs into living characters for a number of years than Tori Amos, who, you know, she makes records and she creates this identity for what a song is. And some of these songs, there's like, because of official live recordings, there will be literally 40 official versions of that song. And, you know, I am a very big Tori fan. Like, I would say it's uncomfortable for most people what a big Tori Amos fan I am. I would definitely be the first person to say I am not one of those I could tell you all 40 different live versions of Winter kind of people. But I think there's something to be said for the idea that you can create an identity for something and a world for it to live in. And the way that interacts with a listener, kind of, it it becomes a person. It becomes a spirit. It becomes a thing. And one of the ways that these artists, John Mayer, Jason Mraz, Tori Amos in particular, the way these three in particular have done it over the years, and I can even make a Janet parallel, is they made some of the songs feel fucking special, right? There was this Tori Amos song that for years never came out and it was always referenced and always rumored and, you know, Teak is going to groan at me. But when the song written for Neil Gaiman, Snow Cherries from France, finally came out, many fans immediately thought it was perfect simply because it finally came out. We've spent since the 60s, to some extent, in love with Mary Jane and now we finally have her. But as a superhero, you know, as as like a, a more than what she was. But now she's really a player. Dimension. Yeah. And, but the dimension of it is so necessary. If Tori Amos had released that song, Snow Cherries from France, exactly the song it was, as like some sort of big pop single, 
people from that era where she was trying to dominate adult contemporary top 40, I don't think the fan base would have reacted to it at all the same. I think they would have been like, this is the fucking single. But by making it the bonus track on the Greatest Hits album you would or wouldn't have bought anyway, I don't think it convinced anybody to buy the Greatest Hits in a way that any bonus track wouldn't have. It wasn't manipulative. And then she went on to re-record it and redo it and re-release it. Sort of the way there's Jackpot MJ and there's Spinneret MJ. And I think the container, right? Like whether it's a B-side or it's a bonus track, I think that really affects the way all of this comes together to paint the narrative of who this character is and their almost totemic potentiality. And I am so frustrated. Again, I am. I love it a woman wrote it and I would never ever tell a woman how to feel about writing stories about women. But I do have some feelings as a male outsider who has his own feelings about clothes, you know, owed to my clothes. I wonder how I feel about this container. This being the way they give me this story. Mother superhero bonding with daughter superhero. I love that it's an MJ shop. That's great. But that it's about fashion in some ways feels maybe a little mall madness to me. I definitely see where you're coming from. I'm going to be honest, my real problem, and it started immediately, and it actually started before this story, was not to rag on the artists, but Ryan Stegman early on in the pages after Annie uh, accidentally webs up her room, she is 18 one minute, she's four years old the next, then she's kind of eight, then we go to a 13-year-old and back and forth. I fully am, I don't, I cannot draw a straight line, so I'm not coming for anybody it just feels a little bit like it must be very difficult to consistently draw and indicate that a fictional character is eight years old. And, you know, by the same token, it's it's tough to draw a 16-year-old and, you know, you look at the character and you go, that's an adult. We shouldn't be sexualizing a child. I can understand how a lot of that just comes from I was trying to draw a teen of a generic age and kind of just missed the mark because it is very difficult to indicate 16 specifically. I then have the same problem in this MJ Annie story where you know she just in some moments looks significantly older than an eight-year-old and I just started to have this really big concern that kind of became distracting about like can we dial this in and if not do we maybe need to move on which I knew we were going to anyway but it just kind of it irked me quite a bit. And you know there's something that does need to necessarily be sinister about trying to draw a mature looking teen you know I think about Mika's We Are Golden and the fact that I'm immediately my senior year of high school having a great time with my friends and it's like I, I can like fucking taste sunset it's insane when that song comes on how much it takes me to a place and I didn't have that song till years after that so it's not like an associated memory it's something it makes me think of there's a celebration of youth that's beautiful and fun and great and I think sometimes just when you're drawing from the adult perspective you blur the lines of types of beautiful and it leads to some really icky results that just aren't cool Uh, I don't think anybody here really over sexualized Annie in a way that made me cringy but I didn't always feel I was looking at a child and that really does diminish the value of 
the storytelling, a coming of age story for this young girl, if you age her to adulthood visually right away, I don't get to see the adventures of this child. And I want to see those innocent, cool, fun, none of that dramatic, weird, dark stuff, energy adventures. I want to see the light stuff, the cool stuff, the stuff that doesn't have any of the bummers that come with adulthood. And sure, there's tons of cool, amazing stuff that comes with adulthood. But if you take away the visual that allows for it, you're kind of taking away my opportunity to experience what made this book unique. And, you know, it's because it's not like in every panel and like a giant glaring error all the time. I I mean, really kind of once we got past the first couple issues, it was easier to settle into. But part of it is that it feels like from an editorial perspective to not go back and sort of say, hey, even not even to fix all of them, because I know there's a timing factor too and a production factor, but we need to fix a few because what it also feels like is like, God, can we get to when she's a teen? So, you know, I can draw what I actually want to. And, you know, I ultimately, I, I do think that one of the big strengths of Renew Your Vows overall and of Annie as a character is that we got to spend this time with her as a younger spider kid. I just, I sort of think there was overall maybe another option or a few different other ways to approach it that ultimately could have led to that same satisfaction, but without some of the hiccups. And there's so many great moments for all of those hiccups. Yeah. For instance, I do love the Rhino moment in that, to my mind, maybe not perfect MJ Annie story mm-hmm. that, you know, that Spinneret is ready to hold her own. Fuck yeah. And that follows up through the second issue, which is, again, from MJ's point of view, I was genuinely not sure what I was reading at times, which I don't mean as a negative reflection of Jerry Conway, who was trying to do something really daring with time here. Some really cool things with moving the story in and out of expected mode. It ultimately makes the second issue read in a flash and not like in a disappointing, this was too fast way, but like in a, wow, I couldn't stop turning the pages kind of way. It just does require two reads. So it's an A for an issue for me, but it did take two reads to get to that A. It was kind of like an incomplete grade before that. I get you. Um, I want to point to one Easter egg really quick that I'm just fascinated by its existence and what the implications of it are. In the Annie and MJ story with the Rhino, if you look in the background at one point, the police cars are hovering police cars from the battle world, world that they were on. And when the story picks up in the real world, they don't have that anymore. There's a few things. However, Reed and Franklin remade this world and put it back. There were some tweaks, a big one being all the X-Men are alive again. Convenient for sales. <laughs> the cars in the background that are the the floating cars from Battleworld really made me wonder if this was supposed to be in that, because if that is the case, Annie doesn't have her costume and she's not even close to getting it. So was this supposed to be a story at the end of the fifth, fifth issue of The Secret Wars, Renew Your Vows? I don't know. I just thought that was a neat little thing that kind of made me, it made me think about what the hopes might have been for this story overall. And I honestly did kind of forget that Reed and Franklin did remake the worlds as necessary because I was kind of like, how the fuck are the X-Men just fine? Well, it is a bit of a glaring error. If you are coming from from Battleworld and they're saying like, this is that universe, the, you know, 
they became spider family after fighting regent you do have to minorly no prize it to explain why the x-men are alive and it is fair then that because we have to spend a decent amount of time and you know we have to that's like you know not because they did but because these women deserve it we need an issue two delving all into the life of mary jane and an issue three which charming charming beginning to end i just really want to congratulate jerry conway who was i'm pretty sure in his 60s when he penned this issue and what a great time i had with issue three you know issues two and three really had me nervous it's an issue from an adult woman's perspective and an issue from a you know a young woman's perspective and child's perspective yeah i just don't want to be like some little girl like i never want to be like you know shut up you're just a girl no no you're like an awesome spider girl and you get to be a superhero but you know like she is genuinely a child yeah she's Uh, you know (laughs) that's okay i get what you're saying he just did such a tremendous job making her honest believable like you know this stuff with the bully and nothing comes of it that's kind of funny like there's a a subtle playfulness to it with mj she has adventures that have nothing to do with spider-man and they're not just her non-spider adventures no she's got little spider adventures that peter doesn't have to be any part of and that's completely fine why because mj doesn't need peter to have agency or value or purpose i also really appreciate that we don't go the full route of mj actress model you know one of the big celebrities of the marvel universe peter parker the world's biggest loser nabbed this woman therefore the real reason she must be with him is because he's spider-man she's doing great she has all her shit together but she owns a relatively successful boutique in manhattan that is excited if it gets a feature on a blog she is not running you know the the mew mew store in soho she is not the most important person in fashion in the marvel universe she feels believably like you know i do great i'm super hot but i do struggle my husband does great he's super hot but he struggles too we struggle together and we've got this great little kid also i just gotta say it now or i'll forget like i love the padding on her costume and the the armor of her costume annie's costume is just such a brilliant touch that is so important that for all her strength and spider powers they said you are not going to fuck up your knees and there's an extra layer to it because in issue three on digital page 11 we see her getting i guess into spider costume and what can only be described as the largest air duct ever (laughs) this is the thing you walk down to get on the plane you know what i mean but she's literally wearing like a legitimate traditional spider costume under her armor Mm -hmm. and it's because she's every bit just as much one of them but not only is she like an actual child and they want to be sure that their child doesn't like you know get a weird broken bone that disturbs her growth plate but like beyond that there is a i am protective of my child factor they are going to be like no but you wear you wear pattern like you know they are going to look out for her physical safety as a parent sometimes i do think about the fact that peter being so fine with mj with mayday in that costume i have some questions about like the ethics of not being like but also wear a trench coat or something i don't know yeah i mean i i mentioned this earlier i do sort of wish that there was a little bit more uh focus on the conversation of like do we allow our child to do this what are the reasons why it's a good idea what are the reasons it's a bad idea 
idea what's our pros and cons list and how did we end up on we're letting her do it i little things like yeah the fact that her costume has padding which at the end of the day if she's in spider fights the padding's not necessarily going to help but the idea that like they're fine without it but the child needs it is a cute little note whether it actually helps or not who the hell knows but i love it as like just slightly overprotective parents but of course they are not slightly overprotective because they let their eight-year-old be a superhero which i find charming and i would be perfectly happy to have the conversation end in this is you know we are we're good to do this i would have loved to have seen that conversation because at the end of the day you know for both annie and mj by virtue of their proximity to peter they're gonna end up in some situations and having it be more than just you know i've you've got a suit for backup or if anything happens annie you're allowed to use your powers and more we might as well get started on this early because this is your whole life now it's something that the x-men have gone back and forth on for decades it's like the entire purpose of schism i just would have loved to have seen this families this microcosm of that conversation you know what conversation i'm furious i saw a microcosm of please tell me who is that marvelous young <gasps> woman shut up you horny little weirdo oh my god i was... i find her fascinating I nearly messaged you. I can't do it. I'm skeeved. I can't get through it. It just so creepy. Just comes off so icky. And I think that I didn't remember that this is four issues. It's kind of funny. And at the same time, it's sort of telling. There really isn't four issues of story here, but I see how they used a good portion of three of them to express more or less the idea of who these characters are by showing like a day in their lives. However, at the end of four issues, I do feel like I'm still in setup mode and I don't know that I really have a sense of this. It's great that I understand Oscorp is like, get out of my way. You know, I want the Regent site. Great. There's things that are set up there. Uh, all the creepy Norman stuff sucks, but I'm just walking out of four issues feeling like I kind of got two issues. Yeah, I mean, I don't disagree. That's we're back to the question of what was what was the intention here? Did people have the impression that they were going to get a lot more issues of this, that this was going to be an ongoing and therefore they could kind of take their time? Because we go into this with the whole package, it's easier to say like, this should have been two issues so that you could have spent two more issues doing something to flesh out, not even the world, but literally the family, like to give us more, less setup and more family story, put us right in the middle of it. Because because, you know, again, we know that after one more volume, we're, we're going up to 18 uh, or to 16, which means like, are we going to have to do more setup to explain how we got from 8 to 16? It is one of the reasons that I'm glad Nathan Stockman did so many issues of this series, because by having another artist come in, like you've said a number of times, it creates like a visual reference point for us as readers. And I do feel like stuff about the family is missing. And it's specifically the family is missing missing because there's so few moments of them all together in the first mini then there's like so few moments of them all together here that aren't we're together for a second one of us runs off we're together for a second one of us runs off that yeah i could have used a little more developing the family time on the whole you know i think that is helped by issue five but even then issue five rounding out that first trade we're still kind of looking at an incomplete view of 
the renew your vows verse. Yeah, I agree. Um, I huge credit to Nathan Stockman. That's an eight year old through and through. Um, every page, every panel. Yeah, and you know, I the first time I made that observation, I went and reread the whole thing to confirm that he can draw an eight year old and then also adults, like because she's like a really cutesy eight year old. And I thought, you know, well, you know, maybe he's just lucking out because his style is cutesy. But no, he draws some solid adults too. He nailed that part. It's fun, you know. I think you're right. If we'd had the Mole Man arc be two issues, and then you know we had either another two issue arc and then a final, or you know a different three issue that kind of just gave us a little bit more family time, I think we would have been on really really solid ground. And it's not like this is a mess. It's just okay. We're still in setup mode. I don't quite know where we're going from here. Is not the like the note that I want to be in with these characters at this point. Still love everybody. I'm still down for the ride. It's just like, okay, I, I'd love if we were somewhere else. The thing that I really appreciated about the fifth issue that it really appreciate that it really provided me was an opportunity to connect with the family as a unit, which I was saying was missing from the previous arc. But again, it's more creepy Norman. And I think I was a little confused because Sandman seemed cool. So I was just surprised when out of nowhere, Sandman was like a bad guy again. Well, so Sandman is a good guy in Battle World. That's what you mean, yeah? Yeah. Yeah. Again, like, where are we? <laughs> is this, you know, one half a number up from whatever the universe designation was in Battle World? We're just no prizing it that Franklin missed some details as he was remaking every universe. But I think you are pointing to another example of like, we did a unique thing here, creating something in Battle World that we are going to continue outside of Secret Wars. Might spend a moment or two indicating to the reader why if they see some details that don't seem right, this is the reason for it. And, you know, the buildup that issue five provides leading to somewhere else, it doesn't feel like the fifth issue of what is essentially a 12-issue run. And that's one of the things I'm most excited to discuss. You know, one through four feels like a solid thing, with five as like a, yeah, this is a quick minute to give Ryan Stegman a chance to breathe, who, for all of the notes we might have about Ryan Stegman's art, maybe being occasionally a little adult for the children, it is beautiful art throughout for MJ, for Peter, even for like incredibly visual things like the Moloids or the, you know, the vice principal has such a physical personality under Stegman's pen. You know, he's an incredible master, so he needed a minute. It just doesn't feel like it's just under the halfway point of this run. Yeah, I think it's true, especially because we do make a relatively significant kind of left in terms of plot and where this is all going in the next volume. And yeah, I do just want to reiterate what you said because I, you know, was a bit critical of the art and particularly particularly of the depiction of Annie. I really don't want to harp on an artist for not nailing it every panel. And I don't want to harp on anybody, but it does feel a little bit like, you know, an editorial thing where you might say like, oh, whoops, you just kind of missed this one and she's 14 here. Can we redo it? I'm sure there are many reasons why that didn't happen that are all totally justified. But if you remove that from the equation, it really is solid. I love everybody's look. I think MJ's spinneret costume really is fantastic. It looks beautiful. And it's that she provides a visual contrast to 
Peter on the page that I really like miss her now when I look at images of Spider-Man. I'm like, oh yeah, she just looks great next to him. It yep. makes him look better having this complimentary palette. And, you know, all said and done, one through five, I give them a strong B, B plus. It's a fun arc. It has a lot of energy. It's pretty tight. You know, I think the introduction, the big thing here is that, you know, Annie is psychic. She's not just like spider sensey. She is super spider sensey. And I wonder what the idea was there. I do too, because we know where it ends up from Spider-Geddon. Like she is an important cog in the Spider-Verse machinery of other and Weaver and whatever the fuck Scion. So was this, you know, in the initial pitch, was it like, hey, we need something that's going to get us a new Scion or Weaver. I forget which one she is. Is that how we got there? Was it, I just want to give her a power boost and then suddenly it turned out that it was going to work really well in Spider-Verse? It makes total sense. You know, Peter has this kind of instinctual mental thing that lets him dodge danger. Hers is a much more expanded version of that. And because it's expanded, you know, because she's the next generation, because it's expanded, it expands in weird and different ways that you wouldn't expect. I buy it entirely. But it is a new and different thing for any spider person that becomes really important for the character and really important for the implications of this family and what they're going to be doing long term. The other problem that I find is something you've already identified, but it's so clear by the end of this arc. I don't want another Osborne. Like, that's not where I'm at. Not every story needs to be Xavier versus Magneto. Spider-Man has so many other villains. This could have been a cool time to elevate a previously minor villain who gets to rise to power post-Regent. It could have been a cool time to see some new villain that's based on some classic character. You know, not that this is exactly what I'm suggesting, but maybe, you know, Robbie's kid had a hard life and, you know, wound up passing away and Robbie's kid's girlfriend wants revenge. You know, like, there's ways to do it that would still give you a foil for Annie when she's like a teenager. I don't know. I just feel like the big thing missing is kind of the originality of the universe as opposed to just slotting in two women alongside Spider-Man in a predictable-esque story. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's not even like, it's fine if you want to have Normie, whatever, if you just pointed out the fact that there is an Osborne that is also Annie's age. That could have been like, it doesn't even have to be a whole issue story. It could have been like, hey, just so you know, something that you could have paid off at any time later. But the fact that this is really kind of the big bad of the Conway run, yeah, it's just, you know, it has been done before. I, I love the idea that there is a kid at Annie's level that could be, it doesn't even need to be a villain, but somebody else for her to kind of interact with that's at her age, that's on the same playing field as she is. But I really can think of any number of situations that could have produced another child for her to interact with that I would have just been like, oh, that's cool. Like, I would never have thought of that and would have allowed her to have a story that is uniquely Annie and isn't just like, as we all know, every time a spider person shows up, there has to be an equal and opposite Osborne.
Reminder, this is an X-Men podcast, so I definitely say the following, you know, with love, but what the fuck are the X-Men doing dominating the rest of this series? What it's is not that? even that they're, like, so present and the story is so revolving around them, which the story really is revolving around them, but they're not, like, so oversaturating the rest of the story that you're like, why are they there so much? But it is that it feels like the universe itself that we are in is, like, the X-Men are actually really important like the spider family's just doing whatever but you wouldn't believe what's going on with the x-men right now you might not though it's not great (laughs) the x-men kind of bummed me out uh you know glad that they're all alive also happy birthday peter and so mayday's not a mutant and whoa annie's not a mutant (laughs) mayday isn't either but just you know the spider children are not mutants yeah yeah and then jubilee is there bobby's there we at some point in the course of things I could not tell you when exactly but we find out that because of a thing with Xavier Jean and Scott fought a lot so she wound up fucking Logan and Scott blames Xavier for the loss of his marriage I can't even with this there's a very all of that is weird all of that is a huge amount of thought creatively to get us to shine shine Kate the child of Jean and Logan I think her power is she gets bright seriously like she just like she just shines you know who the fuck knows and that's i don't know it was weird it really does just feel like somebody was like i have this amazing x-men story to tell i'm actually not going to tell it because this is a spider-man book and i'm required to do that but you would not believe what i would write for you guys if i was writing the x-men so then okay magneto attacks with help from emma frost (laughs) and jubilee is the mole who you immediately know she's the the bad guy because she has a shaved half of her head it is just absurd and i was really into this arc and then honestly i might have kind of fallen off a little bit in my passion for the story but we do get a pretty cool kurt scott logan pete spiderling spinneret and shine like big team up and you know gene and the professor are knocked out which is a bummer and i I don't even know what the fuck emma and magneto were doing exactly but um it just gets big really quick it feels like kind of like a nothing story and then it feels like it's a take on x2 really quickly and it definitely is a moment where i say this cover of number seven spider-man versus magneto that age-old fight that everybody knows about like are we sure (laughs) it just feels like there's nothing here there's a fun two issues like there is it's fun two issues and considering the amount of x-men the book ultimately goes with at the end i guess it pays yeah you need these but they don't feel like two issues of spider-man's story that's for sure yeah i mean so the initial idea that despite not being a mutant annie has power she's eight year old like eight years old life is tough and i also love the idea that xavier would be willing to let her go to school there they're going there because she could potentially go to xavier's and I really like that idea. Even if she doesn't go, I like the idea that they went to the superhero community and was like, anybody got some help for us? I I would have been perfectly happy to for that to be half an issue where they leave after touring the school and discover, you know, some other danger. And that's that's actually the story we get into. The fact that we're here for a while doing this X-Men story that would happen either way, and the spider people happen to be there and be a part of it. 
it's okay. Like, it's cool. It does eventually pay big dividends for this story. But I, there's so many choices here that are such specific choices and really indicate that there's so much more going on here, but we're not going to let you in on it. You know, the fact this is essentially the uh, animated series X-Men in those cl- in those outfits, despite the fact that it's significantly further in the future because there is a child between Gene and Logan in the mix. Uh, it, it just asks so many questions that, of course, there is not time to pay off. And I I just don't quite know how to feel about it. That cover would have been so cool and funny to me had it been Annie versus Magneto. <laughs> because she actually does interact with him a fair degree. And, you know, Spider-Man versus Magneto, who cares either way? Annie versus Magneto is kind of funny. And there's just a lot here that's like, if you, gave, if you did this whole thing, but put the emphasis on different characters, it might have worked. But... It really does feel like this is a two-issue X-Men story guest starring the Spider family. And I don't think issues six and seven are the right place to be doing that. I almost wonder if they thought at some point they'd be able to change it around to renew your vows, Spider-Man, renew your vows, X-Men. Yeah. And have it be a story about like a reuniting or a redefining of a team. I will say that this, you know, really definitively short two-parter does some interesting things that'll be necessary later on. Mm. Number one, I think that Spider-Man and Wolverine's friendship is really well documented or their you know relationship of whatever sort i was actually just talking with tori sheehan over on the billy club where we were discussing how spider-man and daredevil's friendship goes back to like the earliest issues of daredevil like spider-man's in like three or four of the earliest issues of daredevil and daredevil appears in three or four the first 50 issues of spider-man there's connectivity there and wolverine and spider-man take a little bit longer to become like that entrenched with one another and i think that has to do with the fact that they both vaguely led their own lines but I don't always think oh Spider-Man and Wolverine bosom buddies so working so hard to drive that home here not only benefits the creative team at the time because they underscored the emotional relationship between Spider-Man and Wolverine that explains the nature of the relationship between the two essentially family teams but again it pays dividends down the road when the book becomes a little preoccupied with the X-Men you know, th- there is a point in main continuity where Spider-Man goes to work at uh, the school that was run by Logan because when Logan dies, he basically says, like, I need you to do something that nobody else can do if I'm gone. So, you know, like there is there's something real between these two dudes. And I think this book does capitalize on that in the correct way. They are not best friends. They are not... They're not best friends, but they clearly have a really strong respect and affection for each other that works in the book. They're, you know, we don't need to see them hanging all the time to believe that Logan is somebody who Peter knows that he can go to when he is in a bind. Speaking of in a bind, this is where the book goes kind of kerblooey because on one hand, I think that the book lost its writer and in losing its writer, got a writer familiar with the title, which meant losing its artist. 
past, which ultimately leads to, frankly, a fucking reset. Nothing about the Jodie Hauser years really requires these these issues at all. It should have been a new number one, and I bet it would have sold better, but I understand why they kept going. The Venom experiment is really tough to talk about beginning to end, because number one, I thought that the end of Seven was Liz was going to give herself the symbiote and kill MJ, and then instead she gets MJ addicted to venom juice? And, you know, there is an internal reason. I really understand that MJ feels like she's a burden on her husband. She's dragging him down because of her. He doesn't have his full spider strength. So when somebody offers her the opportunity to have new abilities, she doesn't think twice. And she becomes, you know, a she-venom. And this first issue is actually really tense, really fraught, really taut, but sort of like a trailer for a movie movie where the movie isn't a horror movie and you were tricked by the trailer the movie is still good but that's not the movie the trailer pitches yeah i absolutely would see what you're saying it you know ultimately this is always going to be a family story so we kind of got to stay in that lane unless you're going to do something really radically different like if you're going to make it a family story in the horror milieu you got to do that hard and all the way through you can't really waffle and this kind of is waffling a little bit i also think you know immediately liz is a disappointment because oh okay we're we're really digging in on this normie thing huh we added the mom to the mix and the kind of twist not twist of the fact that normie's a fully adult assistant that just like i don't know i it's very hard for me to even suspend my disbelief in a comic sense to be like yeah this adult woman with this very severe bob is gonna let this 10 year old tell her what to do spoiler alert she is a double agent and actually working for liz or not even working for but just reporting on normie to liz normie is at 10 years old an emancipated minor who fully runs oscorp on his own and liz basically runs a rival biotech company but it's only a rival insofar as she's waiting to figure out how to get normie to be a fucking normal child and be her son again this again starts to feel like I have a whole story that I could tell you guys about the Osborns, but this is a Spider-Man story, so we're gonna we're gonna work with what we got. And the delineation point of this run is so severe. The first two issues of this arc are co-plotted by Jerry Conway and Ryan Stegman, and as such, they deal with this Venom symbiote and how Mayday is, jeez, how Mary <laughs> Jane is losing her mind to it, and she's becoming like venomized and she tries to warn Peter stay away and like those first two issues are taught with horror they're truly frightening and you know they're not scary but like that's that's the vibe it's a chiller kind of thing it's you know nightmares and the body horror of being a passenger in your own body as a vessel because of a choice you made and there is some incredible stuff here and Liz Allen is just fucking demented and she's leaning into it and then issue 10 kicks and it's Ryan Stegman doing all of the writing and plotting and it just kind of becomes a superhero book 
book, which it's also very good at. But the genre pivot halfway through a five-issue arc is deeply detrimental to the reading of it on every level. That issue 10 might as well be a Norman-only issue. That Annie and her family are so secondary that the person I feel like fights the lizard is Norman and Annie. Like, it doesn't feel like the third part of the Venom arc. It feels just very out of nowhere, like a deep shift in the tone, timber, and personality of the book. Yeah, one of the big things is they don't really give any indication that we have ended the Venom arc, and this is now MJ's status quo for a minute. It really leaves you on the note of, and next issue, we will figure out how to get this off. It'll be, it will be the third part. And when it picks back up, it is just sort of acting like, as you know, we have decided that she will just be in the suit. Given that it's that plus welcome to the life of Normie, who at the very least at this point, he's not horny anymore. Way to go, Ryan Stegman. That was very important to get rid of. I think we get some really interesting character development from him. I don't care about it, but if if we're going to have to do it anyway, at least we do get something solid. I also love the idea that MJ just happens to have a stronger will than a lot of other people. And in that way, she is not overtaken by the Venom suit in the same way that others will be. There's some neat details here and there's some solid, you know, family building and world building for this book. It's just how it's all coming together for very obvious reasons that is not unfortunately working. And the transition from Venom as Mary Jane's personal journey is so troubling because I thought this book was about Annie Mae. I thought this book was about Spider-Lane. But I understand that that is like the hindsight reframe on it. She was the breakout character. So after issue 12, the book was reformatted around her instead of it really being a balance. Although I still think the book leans very heavily the parents. And the the transition to being so about Mary Jane for those two issues felt okay. Like there was that two issue Spider-Man arc kind of sort of. I know that the X-Men arc wasn't a Spider-Man arc exactly, but it it probably played a little bit more into Spider-Man than anybody. And then second most to Annie, there was some Mary Jane, but she really just had a couple of scenes here and there with Cyclops. She kind of faded into the background. So for her to be the star of eight and nine in this thing that was so definitive for every other spider person, it's years of their storytelling. And for her, it's two fucking issues and we're done. That feels like a short change. And then we get this one issue all about the bad guy out of nowhere. And thank goodness for better, but he feels like a different character very suddenly. And now we're at the beginning of this two-part arc, which is suddenly called The Curse of the Green Goblin. I don't feel like I got any conclusion on the Venom thing. I feel like they can't have gotten any conclusion on the Venom thing. I don't know how Annie feels about her mom wearing a known killer. Like, Annie knows who Venom is. Well, There's he some stuff tried that... to kill her. <laughs> That's how yeah. this whole thing starts. So it's really a weird point to change writers. And I feel very strongly that it was not the intent of this arc to transition to issues 10, 11, and 12 when this all began. But I don't know that I blame that on Ryan Stegman. This was a tricky time at Marvel. A lot of editorial changes, a lot of writing changes, but it does reflect in the finished product. Yeah, I mean, I think ultimately 
there is a combination of pages and issues in which everything that we get here could still be told, but if we just slightly rearrange things, we might have gotten something that wasn't so jarring in the way that it just kind of cuts itself off to start a whole new story without really leaving us with the expectation that that's what we would be doing, um, you know, with a character that maybe we might be a little more satisfied to be taking a pivot towards for a minute while we let this Venom situation play out. Um, you know, it's none of it's bad. The The stories themselves, the art's really great. It's all good. It's just the way that it all happens is a bit messy. It's unfulfilling, if nothing else, for me. And it's always hard to take a look at a run and examine it with some hindsight and say, this is how I feel and would have felt at the time. You know, like I didn't read this month and I'm a really big fan of trying to take in a run and figure out how it shakes out. I often think that runs tend to end a few issues before they do and we don't realize it, but the book was over a little bit before it was. Like I have no qualms with the final few issues of Runaways by Brian K. Vaughn, the second volume. But you know, for me, the book kind of ends when Gert dies. I don't really need the Young Avengers Runaways crossover. I don't need that last six issues by BKV. The Whedon issues are okay. Don't really need them the same way though. You know, that's also a different run. And that's even kind of what I'm talking about. The book that started with Renew Your Vows 1 through 5 by Dan Slott and Andy Kubert definitely didn't end in issue 5. It was left in a very open-ended position so that more people could tell stories there, it felt. And issue 1 by Jerry Conway definitely did not feel like it was picking up as issue 6 of Renew Your Vows, but rather issue 1 of a revisioning in like a slight way, which is fine. And then at issue 6, maybe issue 8 for sure, it felt like there was a deep revisioning again into something more adult, something kind of scary. And then suddenly at issue 10, it takes this pivot toward more middle of the road, Amazing Spider-Man fare. And that's totally cool because that's a very successful thing and there's nothing wrong with telling a standard story in a popular genre. But for me, 11 and 12 are the final two issues of a 12-issue run started in issue 10. It is not the end of the year-long run that is the follow-up to the breakout miniseries Renew Your Vows. This is just two issues that really follow up the previous issue really well. And I don't know what more I could ask of a writer who suddenly took over the book out of nowhere. Yeah, I think you really nailed it. Bringing the X-Men back is at least a payoff of how this all started, but again, feels a little bit like, oh, the X-Men in this spider story are really important to like fixing the thing. Okay, I very much appreciate that Normie has a trajectory that takes us from insane, horny little monster to a kid that can admit that he's really upset that his dad died and doesn't really know, is made himself into an adult too early and now regrets it, basically, and just needs somebody to look at him and say, no, you're a kid, which is exactly what Andy does. I think it's a great arc for a character that I'm not particularly excited to have in the mix at this point. Yeah, you know, it's it just leaves me wondering what this was all for. There's really cool moments that we get, like, you know, MJ being like, I will symbiote fuck you up to pieces, Liz Allen. Where's my kid? And Liz is like, I'm a mom. <laughs> and MJ is kind of like, I'm a mom and an alien. And that second one is your fault. I'm 
I'm going to give you three seconds to answer before I eat you with said alien. And Liz is like, oh, I probably should have involved a kill switch in this. Oops. Meanwhile, Peter's like, I'm going to punch this the rhino to death. And I'm like, what is happening? You know, it's great to see what devoted parents they are. They're not defined in a gendered way. They both actually, you know, behave pretty in line. In fact, your point of, you know, MJ's willpower, even cooler. But the ridiculousness of the X-Men are here to help because they're really good at fighting giant robots. Okay, well, they actually are. They're very good at (laughs) fighting giant robots designed to kill them. It's one thing they're good at, but it does sort of feel unearned i don't think the x-men really ever fit this book and that's what's funny that's probably what has the first 12 issues of the renew your vows ongoing series not past totemic symbology for me it's too about the x-men in a way that doesn't feel like it's about spider-man i definitely see what you're saying and i i agree think of anything because there really is an opportunity here to get into big parts of what it means to be peter parker peter parker as a father, you know, what it means to have a long-term relationship with MJ, how all these things factor in, another spider child. I think we get really close, but really the only person that comes out feeling like they got fully enough exploration is Annie, the eight-year-old, who, for all the exploration that we get of her when she's eight, you know, we know she's going to need to grow up, and a lot of these things should and will change. So, even though she gets a lot of character development and sort of gets to be part of the spider mythos gets to kind of contribute to the totemic symbology of being a spider person all of that is going to change as she becomes a teenager and then an adult i also thought it was really weird that miss january turns out to be triple crossing liz allen and is like i mean i i think they wanted her to be a part of the goblin cult from you know that we had seen in spider girl but they were maybe thought that was like a bridge too far in copying spider girl so she's just like weirdly passionate about the Osbournes. Um, I, you know, because I'm so already just like, maybe we don't do the Osbournes to add in a twist on another thing that's like his mom's thing. It just kind of was like, nah, we, we probably could have used this page space elsewhere and I'm never going to care about Miss January. Because I actually did think she also came off a little creepy in love with him. Yeah. Like there were just so many weird levels to this and the kid doesn't come off special. The kid comes off kind of horrible and a little basic so that every Everybody's all like, we can't stop fighting over Norman Osborn Jr. I'm like, why though? God, marshal your energy, spend it on someone worth it, because this kid's not. And, you know, I think I would love to be able to give the second volume a grade based on 6 to 12, but I don't think that's an option. It's just kind of not. I think I give 6 and 7 a B-. minus. It's, like, actually not even a very good X-Men story. It's a pretty okay Spider-Man and the X-Men random story, but it's definitely not a very good X-Men story. It's not a very good Spider-Man. Spider-Man story. If it hadn't gone somewhere, I probably wouldn't give it the B minus. Yeah, I think we're on the same page with that. It shows a significant knowledge of what you need in an X-Men story that sets up everything about where the X-Men are in in their alternate universe journey. That's just not something that I would expect the writer of a Spider-Man title to be showing me. So yeah, you know, when it comes to eight and nine, which I feel like need their own grade, the potential 
potential of what eight and nine offered me is an A. Yeah. The problem is what eight and nine pays off, where it goes in as far as those two issues, it really does not feel like issue 10 is the follow up to issue nine in any meaningful way. It feels like there's at least two or three issues missing in there, maybe a two page sequence even if you really needed to bare bones. But I need to give what does exist for eight and nine outside of its potential a C minus because it doesn't actually resolve. Yeah, I can't argue with you. The potential really is a B, B plus. MJ and the symbiote, totally an interesting route to go. I maybe would have left it on. (laughs) You know, if we really are talking about she can't keep siphoning Peter's powers, they can't keep sharing in the same way. MJ deserves to be a player on the stage. MJ contained the symbiote. We would have kept it on her. And you really could have done that in two pages. Uh, But if you're not going to, if you need it to be its own thing, or if you are going to and you want to flesh it out, it really does need to be issue 10. And then there's no way this normie story needs 10, 11, and 12. Two issues for that would have been fine. I still would not have cared about normie. I still would have been impressed with what they did. But the fact that it interrupts this MJ story and convolutes everything, you know, lowers the the Venom experiment grade. And then it kind of fucks its own grade up because it wasn't that great a story to begin with. Yeah, it's a C. Yeah. 10 through 12 is a C. And the fact that it's a part three with no reasonable part one and two to be found on the map is glaring. It's hard to get through for that reason. It really hurts the average of Renew Your Vows. I still stand comfortably by giving volume zero, as it were, the Secret Wars volume, an A minus. Probably, you know, I did think of a few more detractors when we were talking about it in the recording earlier, but I gotta give one through 12, like a B minus C plus. I can see why this book didn't even have a full year left in it. Yeah, I want to say B, B minus. I just don't know that all things considered, I can. There is so much about this that is good. And there are moments that are really, really good. There's almost nothing about the writing or the art that is those low grades. It is how the whole thing is packaged together. The editorial choices that are made, the pacing choices that just bring this whole thing down. And and the fact that, you know, I it just doesn't feel like anybody knew what the point of this was. If the point of it was to explore equal place in the Spider-Man mythos for women who are part of Spider-Man's world and the value that women bring to the Spider-Verse to be celebrated in characters like Spider-Gwen and the many Spider-Women. And this was an opportunity to organically take that positive multi-generational female energy and combine it with Spider-Man's male energy. Yeah, if that was the point, and if I guess the point was to just do it. I don't mean that as critically as it sounds, though I know it sounds kind of damning. But if the point wasn't to like do the Dark Phoenix saga of that, then you did it. And that's cool because you didn't do like the Chuck Austin's X-Men of it. This isn't like the thing people are going to point to and be like, that's the worst example of that thing ever. I don't know that there's actually ever been a Spider-Man's child book that's ever been that bad. I mean, Trouble is that bad, but that's about Spider-Man as a child. So that's different. But, you know, 
this is just I think this if it weren't for the intersections of our show, I would have never come across this. I never would have read it. I would have completely forgotten it existed and it never would have bothered me, to be honest. Yeah, unfortunately, that's the biggest thing, even though I do really love Annie. I love her connection to Mayday now. I I, I actually do want to see more. and I want to see more of this whole family, especially at this point. I have to agree that if if we hadn't read it for the show, it wouldn't really matter to me. And I can't say that I still at this point am convinced that it matters for Spider-Man overall. I want it to, and I think it could, but right now I still just big question mark. And given how much of this has been published at this point, I think big question mark is not quite where we should be. You know, and I do like the Jody Hauser years a lot more, and I'm excited to talk about them next as well as the next volume of Spider-Verse, but we've definitely hit the point of diminishing returns, and I think it was Spider-Geddon, and it wasn't Spider-Geddon's fault, but Spider-Geddon was the tipping point. But, you know, on the other hand, in our real-world continuity, we're just a few days away from that first issue of Mayday's Infinity comic, so we got a lot to look forward to still. And until we come back to take a look at that fantastic moment in time that we have waited for so hard, TK, where can everybody find you? You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at xnatexgrayx, and of course, you can find me on this show talking about all of my favorite books. As always, you guys can find me on this show as well as on Twitter, Instagram, and Hive at NicoAction. That's N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N. Don't forget to check out the partner channel for this show over on YouTube, the Hubs Plus Network, where you can find extended versions of this show, our upcoming amazing new relaunch with YouTube as our primary platform. You guys are going to want to check it out. There's going to be some really cool videos. You're going to want to definitely get in on it right away. It's going to be exciting. Until next time, keep those mutant lights lit, those Krakoan gateways open. Remember, it's almost time to hang loose and slam heat. It's almost time. Can't wait. And we'll see ya. Bye.